Before Shopify, were you wondering, where my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com. Helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. The public at large has a hard time understanding how often innocent people are wrongly convicted. The Los Angeles Police Department, the DA's office, and the FBI were determined that Pratt should stay behind bars. And so they tried to find some other case to bring against him. And they finally decided on an unsolved murder case called the Tennis Court Murder that came out of Santa Monica and charged him with this on the basis of some shenanigans involving a FBI informant named Julio Butler. Julius Butler said at Pratt's trial he was not an FBI informant. We have a ton of material that clearly indicate that Butler was a, uh, an FBI informant. As an example, here we have an FBI Federal Bureau of Investigation, August 19, 1969, and all the information he was giving the FBI during that interview. Of course, the FBI is going to place itself in a position of being able to deny whatever happens, just the way uh, they're denying that uh, Julius Butler is, was an informant. Butler said that he has written a letter containing information relating to an involvement of BP members in an affair that could put them in a gas chamber. It had a, an informant file. And Butler was contacted about three dozen times, but they said, well, he's not an informant. Butler said that he was expelled from the BPP in August of 1969. At Pratt's trial, he said he was not expelled, that he quit. Now, according to FBI's own records, their own telephone tap, they later realized that Geronimo Pratt was in Oakland at the time of the tennis court murder. The ballistics person uh came in and testified that the bullet taken from the victim did not match uh ballistically the barrel of the gun well the way they they got around that was they had julius butler as part of his confession tell the jury that not only did pratt confess the crime to me that he did it but he also told me that he threw the barrel of the gun away so that took care of that the counterintelligence program had successfully divided the Black Panther Party into two opposing groups and the Newton group had barred any members of its group from having anything to do speaking on the phone talking to and definitely not testifying in trial of the other group Geronimo Pratt had been expelled he was in the other group and so almost all the people who had attended these staff meetings in which he was present in which I was present were unable 
upon pain of being expelled from the Panther Party to testify. This murder in Geronimo's case clearly was not Geronimo. Then those government agents need to be brought to justice. And that's, that's, uh, that's the responsibility of people in this country at this point in time. FBI's considered an attempt to try to smash the Black Panther Party. They stopped actually attacking us. Didn't mean that it had no covert crap going on. Infiltration of cocaine into the Black Panther Party, its leadership, uh, Huey P. Newton being the main target. And every once in a while I say, I says, why are you snorting this cocaine? This ain't the thing. Now, I don't say this because I'm trying to destroy Huey's character. What I'm trying to tell people is you have to learn to know the whole truth. I had a um, clear impression that uh, chemical warfare would be utilized against the Black Panther Party. We had taken a position in our rules against anyone shooting heroin and narcotics found would be immediately dismissed from the Black Panther Party because we essentially were anti-drug in our operations. Uh, I'd say in my analysis and reflection and research that there were mind control operations run against the Black Panther Party as well as a lot of other operations, uh, psychological warfare programs. And when I say chemical warfare, I'm talking about chemical substances like alcohol and cocaine. MKUltra was what you might call a research program by the CIA to determine if psychotropic drugs, mind-altering drugs, uh, might be used um, for intelligence purposes, either for chemical warfare, for um, the interrogation of intelligence assets, or the neutralization of, of uh, targets. See, you have to remember, if you read some of the CoinTelPro documents, they had a psychological profile on Huey, on me, on Alfred. They knew they could use Huey, and they knew that they could trick Eldridge into a certain level of thinking. So, what, I mean, they, they had developed this over a period of time. Now, here we got a situation where you got some party members that talked to me that they believe Huey got duped in to, on a small scale level, methodologically destroying the party. And uh, the party basically went from a people's organization to Huey's private army. That's basically what happened. It was agreed that I would run for mayor of Oakland, and then Huey insisted that Elaine Brown had to run for city councilwoman at large. We lose the goddamn campaign, and then I found out May, late May 1974, that Huey was trying to take over the drug trade in Oakland, California. So I said, Huey, the party is over. Context of white supremacy. Gus T. Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Thursday, March 25, 2021. So I have been told this is our fourth study session on Jack Olson, suspected racist. His biography of Geronimo Pratt, Last Man Standing. 
understanding. Uh, we are picking up on chapter 13. Uh, we are starting to get a lot more information uh, about the case and the trial specifically uh, where Mr. Pratt was convicted of these 1968 uh, or this 1968 murder uh, and then attempted murder uh, the hu husband Kenneth Olson uh, survived uh, the audio segment that we heard at the beginning from the documentary film All Power to the People uh, which gives just a lot of really solid information on the Black Panther Party the Cointel Pro tactics against the Black Panther Party and uh, many others, uh, the American Indian Movement, Dr. Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, uh, Vietnam gives a, a great history uh, of Vietnam and how that factors into all of this and how the racist white supremacists uh, used drugs not only to help uh, neutralize the Black Panther Party, uh, but black people in general uh, of this era who were becoming uh, politicized and trying to become less confused uh, about what was happening to them whom was responsible for the things that were happening to black people non-white people all over the world we talked about some of that last week uh, and how a lot of the uh, infighting uh, with the party uh, really I don't want to say devastated but was a strong uh, detractor uh, was a strong corrosive impact uh, to Geronimo Pratt not getting all the help that he could have and maybe getting a different verdict uh, for this trial the first time around but all of that said uh, we will continue we'll get more information about Mr. Uh, Johnny Cochran this week as well uh, we will go ahead and get started last man standing the tragedy and triumph of Geronimo Pratt audio segment number one context of white supremacy chapter 13 enchained locked in the hole without TV radio newspapers a flush toilet or any contact with the outside world the bored Pratt asked permission to conduct classes on African history and culture. Every few days he would share the information that he'd picked up from his parents, his mentor Bunchy Carter, and authors like Franz Fanon, Langston Hughes, and James Baldwin. He found he could get the black inmates attention by opening with a tidbit of information he gleaned from Huey P. Newton that the African city of Timbuktu was once the cultural center of the civilized world and the Greeks took their gold all the way across the desert to Timbuktu to exchange it for information and books for their colleges in Athens. He introduced himself to his students as Geronimo Gijaga, the ethnic name assigned by Bunchy but seldom heard in the Panthers where he was known as G or Geronimo. The inmates wanted to know where I got Gijaga and I explained that it came from African history. One of the brothers said, Black history? I didn't know there was any black history. I told him you had to know where to look. Some of the guys were hip that Geronimo was the name of an Apache chief but I told him how Bunchy checked the etymology back through a dozen civilizations and found it started as a Nubian name 
written in hieroglyphics. I taught that the Jaga tribe were fighters, mercenaries. Slave traders never messed with them. They were too rebellious, wild, suicidal. The few times the Jaga were caught, they killed themselves in their chains. Like every pedagogical prat from his maternal grandmother down through his mother and siblings, Geronimo had always enjoyed learning and teaching, and now he was imprisoned with Hispanics he began boning up on old interests. Soon he was teaching Mexican history to Mexicans. He described how Emiliano Zapata had fought for the peasants and Pancho Villa had eluded the Federales and how the earliest Mexican Indians had been oppressed first by the Spanish and then by their own leaders. The more I talked about the indigenous peoples, the more attention the Hispanics paid. They began to lose their Mexicanness and concentrate on their Indianness. Their indigenous spirits were coming out. Then I would tell them about the biggest body of indigenous peoples on earth, the human race, not including the guards. That always got a laugh. But the cell block educational sessions came to an end after a few months. Shackled, handcuffed, and barefoot, Pratt was driven from Los Angeles to the state facility at Tracy, an admissions center where convicts were screened, tested, and reassigned to prisons like San Quentin, Folsom, and Tehachapi. His head and facial hair were shaved for lice. Now I'm clean-shaven, he joked to himself. Barbara Mary Reed is finally right. Without explanation, he was assigned to solitary confinement. At 4 a.m. on his first night, he was trying to sleep when he heard the electrically operated lock on his door click open. No guards were in sight. Two Latino prisoners padded quietly toward his cell from the far end of the dimly lighted corridor. Geronimo stepped out and walked toward them at the same deliberate pace. He'd never been in a penitentiary, but he knew that some of the Hispanic and black convicts were at war. If this was a setup, he intended to die fighting. Hey man, he said, trying to brazen things out. Y'all got something for me to read? He saw the glimmer of a knife blade. There was no place to run. When the men were a few feet away, he decided that his only hope was to lunge for the shank. He was tightening his leg muscles when he heard a shout from one of the cells. He thought he heard Canejo, the Spanish word for rabbit, then cabrones, the vilest insult, and then no, no, no. The intruders halted. The mystery voice softened and said in a heavy Spanish accent, Hey bro, get your fucking ass out of here. 
Geronimo stepped to the nearby cell and peered inside. A picture of Adolf Hitler adorned the wall bordered by swastikas and a cross. A small tea-colored man with a flowing black mustache reached through the bars and offered his palm. Geronimo looked around and saw the hit squad still frozen in place. I know you man, the convict said. You're Geronimo. I'm Juan Dominguez. Mucho gusto. How do you know me? Pratt asked. You been down to county jail? Dominguez nodded and said, You been set up, man. The guards open your door and somebody comes in and sticks you. But I'm not gonna let my people do you, man. Geronimo said, This is crazy. You don't even know me. I heard about the history lessons you give at county. Shotgun told me. You know Shotgun? He's an OG. OG? Original gangster. Muy malo. Very dangerous. Hey, how the fuck you know Mexican history? A door clanged at the far end of the corridor and four guards burst into the cell block. Okay, okay, lock it up. They yelled, lock it up. They motioned to the two men in the middle of the corridor. Get back in your cells. To Pratt, the guards seemed to be putting on a show. He slipped inside his own cell as the guards marched off with the two Mexicans. His door lock clicked in place. Chapter 14 Desperation A few months later, Johnny L. Cochran Jr. picked up his phone to hear the voice of his fellow Sunset Limited traveler. Cochran, said Geronimo Pratt, I need you bad and I need you fast. Those son of a bitches are going to put me on trial for a murder I didn't do. He explained that the court had appointed Charles Hollapeter of Pasadena to represent him in the tennis court murder case. Cochran knew Hollapeter by reputation. He was a respected member of the criminal defense bar, a successful attorney in his 60s. Pratt was lucky to get such a high-caliber representation. Hollapeter's okay, Geronimo continued in a torrent of words. But I want you to be my lawyer too. I want you to be on my case. I saw the way you were with Willie Stafford. I saw you argue for him. I want you to argue for me like that. I love the way you argue, Cochran. Cochran was in such demand that he'd had to ask his two busy partners in the firm of Cochran, Atkins, and Evans to help with his caseload. Business was so good that he was planning to trade in his Cadillac Eldorado on a Rolls Royce. During the conspiracy trial, he'd come to respect Geronimo Pratt. Willie Stafford also thought highly of the Panther leader and insisted that in the worst moments of the police crackdown, Pratt had continued 
to push the BPP's original social programs. That guy don't have a mean bone in his body, Stafford had told Cochran. I mean, he'll fight you if you cross him, but fighting isn't his game. I met some of his family. They're all into helping folks. That's just the Pratt's. Cochran checked with Hollapeter and won his enthusiastic approval to join the case. There are things about this shooting that don't compute, Mr. Cochran, the older man said. Maybe you can help me sort them out. Like what? Well, the DA has two eyewitnesses, the wounded husband and a woman that runs a hobby shop up the street seems like their descriptions change every other day. I don't doubt their honesty, but I think they're being manipulated. Didn't they identify Pratt in a live show-up? There wasn't any. In Cochran's experience, police and prosecutors held live show-ups when they were sure they had the right man but deftly bypassed the procedure if they were uncertain. Photo spreads and courtroom identifications were easier to manipulate. Hollapeter said he also had concerns about the state's main witness, Julius Carl Butler. Geronimo claims he kicked the guy out of the party because he's an informer says everybody knew he was a paid agent for the LAPD and the DA and probably the FBI, but I can't get the DA's office to admit it. Shouldn't that have come out in discovery? Cochran said in a reference to the pretrial exchange of information and evidence. It should have, but it didn't. The prosecutor swears that Butler's clean. Who's prosecuting? A deputy DA named Kalustian. Dick Kalustian? He was in my graduating class at Loyola. Good. Maybe he'll be more cooperative with you. Cochran drove to the Hall of Justice and asked Kathleen Parker, the 66-year-old Superior Court judge assigned to the case, to add his name as counsel for Pratt. He'd made many appearances in her court, and they seemed to have good rapport. But this case would be different. I didn't know it at the time, Cochran wrote a quarter century later, but I had just crossed over into a twilight zone of deceit, dishonesty, betrayal, and official corruption whose darkest corners have yet to be illuminated. He went from the judge's chambers to the Los Angeles County Jail for a sit-down with his new client, recently returned from the hole at Tracy. He found Pratt unusually agitated, his Creole drawl replaced by a jackhammer cadence and drive. You know me, and you know I didn't kill that woman, he blurted out before they finished shaking hands. He began a rambling disquisition to the effect that he was a marked man. Somebody was out to get him, maybe the FBI, maybe the LAPD, 
I can't sleep at night trying to figure out they're framing me for murder. Cochran, you gotta help me, man. Geronimo, the lawyer said, gentling him down with a soft pat on the shoulder. Didn't you and I and Marva Zinman and a bunch of other guys just spend months and months proving who was out to get you and Willie Stafford and your wife and every other panther? Didn't we prove it's the LAPD? It ain't just the LAPD, Pratt said emphatically. Then who is it? Cochran asked. Geronimo shook his head. I don't know, man, he said. I just don't know. Too many weird things been happening. Did you know I was set up at Tracy? For sure? Two Mexicans. Middle of the night. The guards were behind it. A race thing? What's the difference? Dead is dead, Cochran. They had knives. The lawyer was thinking that Pratt wasn't the first client who thought the universe was against him. The reaction seemed to hit accused men as soon as they donned jail clothes and heard a steel door slam shut behind them. Every day after that, they were pushed around and insulted and injured and controlled so much that they went a little crazy. Prisoners routinely turned on their own lawyers. It was a risk of the profession. Relax, friend, Cochran said. A deputy arrived to tell them that their time was up. We've got a strong case. You may serve some time for that gun conviction, but you're not going down for murder. Together with Hollipeter, Cochran decided to contact the high-ranking Panthers who could verify that Pratt had been in party meetings in Oakland on the night of the tennis court shootings. They called for assistance from the ad hoc Pratt Defense Committee, which consisted of Long John Washington, the Freeman brothers, Roland and Roland, several radical Los Angeles attorneys and their staffers, and the defendant's oldest brother, Charles, who'd quit his post with the computer company to throw his high IQ and financial resources into the battle to save his brother. The defense committee members made several stabs at reaching David Hilliard, Panther Chief of Staff, and Bobby Seale, co-founder of the party and Huey Newton's second-in-command. When they couldn't get through, they thought they were having typical long-distance telephone problems. But after a week, they realized they were being deliberately ignored. At Cochran's request, Pratt asked one of his Panther friends to find out what was going on. Two days later, Geronimo phoned from jail. Cochran? Forget about Seal and Hilliard and all those heavies in Oakland. Huey Newton issued another order. Anybody who has anything to do with me is a running dog capitalist motherfucker and will be expelled from the party forever. Forever. I'm now a pariah. Well, 
Other people must have seen you in Oakland, Cochran said. Small fry. Drivers, secretaries, flunkies, the ones that kiss Huey's ass. They would never challenge him. What about Kathleen Cleaver? Didn't you tell me that she was in Oakland that night? Yeah, Kathleen's cool, but she's in North Africa with Eldridge. With the murder trial set for March 1972, the defense attorneys sat down to consider the essential elements of the prosecutor's case as revealed in preliminary statements and pretrial motions. Kenneth Olson would identify Pratt as the shorter of the two gunmen. Barbara Reed would identify Pratt as the man who returned to her shop with a gun a few minutes before the nearby shootings. Julio Butler would testify that Pratt admitted complicity in the crime at least three times. A passing motorist would place a car that resembled Pratt's GTO at the scene. A forensics expert would affirm the markings on the murder cartridges matched markings on a gun that had been taken from the Panthers by police and might have belonged to Pratt. The lawyers knew that the vague sighting of a red and white Pontiac GTO with whitish license plates could be neutralized by witnesses who would testify that Geronimo's prized possession had become a Panther car known as the GOAT and was driven by many others, including Julio Butler himself. The prosecution's witness list showed that the forensics expert would be Dwayne Wolfer, who was already under fire for his work in other cases. That left two major problems, the eyewitnesses and the hairdresser. Geronimo repeated to his lawyers that everybody knew Butler was a paid informer for the LAPD. Is the jury going to believe a known snitch? Cochran told him, we can't put everybody on the witness stand. We need convincing proof. The more specific, the better. How'd he give himself away? Oh, he was always egging us on, trying to get us to do stuff, crazy stuff. He paused. Hard to explain. Exactly, Cochran said. That's why it won't fly in court. We have to prove that the guy's an informer or he's going to hurt us bad. At Cochran's request, co-counsel Hollapeter contacted Deputy D.A. Kalustian to ask if all evidence about the Pratt investigation had been turned over to the defense under the rules of discovery. Once again, Kalustian assured him that the answer was yes. Cochran was baffled when Hollapeter recounted the conversation. If Julius Butler was a police informer, the admission should have been included in the material that Kalustian had already submitted. Cochran checked the discovery file again, but the hairstylist's name wasn't mentioned. Professional ethics and the rules of procedure mandated that Cochran's old classmate 
play fair or risk his case and reputation. Cochran remembered Calustian as a bright, decent young student. They were among 40 survivors out of a starting class many times larger. The late word on Calustian was that he'd become a skillful prosecutor whose legal talents were being wasted on Picayune cases in Los Angeles backwaters like Torrance. People of California vs. Elmer Gerard Pratt was his breakout opportunity. Cochran wished his old classmate well. He hoped he lost with honor. His thoughts drifted back to Julius Butler. The man known as Mama and Mother was a businessman, a beautician, an ex-deputy sheriff, almost twice the age of the typical panther. What did he have in common with the young hotbloods of the BPP? Cochran had sniffed out plenty of paid informers in his courtroom battles. They were a prime investigative tool of the LAPD, the FBI, and the DA's office, especially in matters involving black defendants. To Cochran, Julius Butler had snitch written all over him. But how could he prove it? The lawyer turned next to the sticky problem of the courtroom identifications of Pratt as the killer. There were sure to be at least two finger pointers and both would be positive. Such witnesses always were. Do you see that person in this courtroom? Yes, sir. He's the man sitting right there. Every member of the legal establishment knew that such IDs were essentially meaningless as instruments of truth. Who else would a witness identify in the courtroom? The lawyers? A bailiff? But the accusations were effective theater. Cochran recalled that a friend, attorney Leo Branton, had attacked cross-racial identifications in winning an unexpected acquittal for the black revolutionary Angela Davis on charges of murder, kidnapping, and criminal conspiracy. He phoned his old mentor and spent the next 45 minutes taking notes on the latest scientific information about the effect of racial differences, hysteria, and stress on eyewitness testimony. You need some PhDs to testify, Branton concluded. There's a lot of new data. He said he knew just the man. Chapter 15 The People versus Pratt The tennis court murder trial opened with a rancorous discussion in the judges' chambers. Bailiffs cited the melee in the conspiracy trial and insisted that the ringleader, Pratt, be kept in shackles and handcuffs for everyone's safety, especially theirs. I was at that trial, Cochran said forcefully. There was blood on the floor and it came from our clients. The deputies were the ones with the guns and clubs.
Charles Hollipeter argued that visible restraints would prejudice their client in the jury's eyes. As a compromise, Judge Kathleen Parker, a thin-faced woman who wore her gray hair pulled sharply back, ruled that the defendant would be shackled whenever he was in the adjoining holding cell in the presence of the jury he would be unchained. At 11.15 a.m. on Wednesday, June 14, 1972, Deputy D.A. Richard Kalustian stood up to make his opening statement. Before he could start, Cochran was on his feet. He spotted Barbara Mary Reed staring at Geronimo from the first row. He suspected that she was being prepped for the eyewitness identification. By the time she took the stand, she would be able to describe every pore on the defendant's face. At the outset, Cochran told the judge, we would make a motion to exclude any witness who may be present, save the investigating officer, your honor. I would ask that any witness present be excused. The judge ordered Reed out. Kalustian's crisp opener lasted only 10 minutes. The prosecutor maintained a countenance as grim as his material. His heavy black eyebrows, thick shock of black hair, full black mustache, and hawkish nose producing a saturn look that seemed to command the jury's attention. He retraced the steps of Elmer Pratt and a man named Tyrone from the hobby center to the tennis court to a car that resembled Pratt's GTO. He told the jurors the culprits were to remain unknown until August or September of 1970 when a certain letter was uncovered. A year previously, in August of 1969, at a time when Julio Butler was still a member of the Black Panther Party, a rift occurred between Julio Butler and the other members of the party. His life was threatened. He decided that he would commit what he knew to paper. Among his many topics were the tennis court shootings. He delivered the letter to a community relations officer, Sergeant Rice, and asked that the letter not be opened at all. He felt it was an insurance policy. But the letter was opened a year later at a police department disciplinary hearing, Kalustian explained, and that's the first time, the first lead in the case. Subsequently, Kenneth Olson and Barbara Reed identified Elmer Gerard Pratt from a series of mugshots. A forensics expert connected a gun believed to be the defendant's with the cartridges recovered from the tennis court and an indictment was returned. This is the people's evidence. Thank you. Hollipeter and Cochran waived opening statements and Kalustian called his first witness. Barbara Mary Reed. In the middle of her dramatic account of events on the murder night, he asked, almost as an inside, By the way, do you see in the court the shorter of the two gentlemen that was in your store that night? 
the jurors watched attentively as she replied this gentleman on my left at the end of the table is that the gentleman in the striped shirt yes Kalustian held his hand over Pratt and said the gentleman I have my hand over yes in looking at mr. Pratt today the prosecutor continued what is it about him that enables you to say that he was in your store on the 18th of December 1968 the woman answered in slow emphatic terms I remember his face thoroughly exactly everything about his features everything about him his haircut the shape of his head his eyes she said he'd had a full head of hair and a widow's peak when Kalustian asked if she'd noticed any marks on his face or scars or anything the judge sustained Cochran's objection that the question was leading and suggestive the prosecutor took another approach question you have indicated that when you were talking to mr. Pratt you were standing face to face talking with him is that right answer yes he was about the same height I am question and did you get a look at his face as you were standing answer yes I was face to face with the man and what drew my attention to him one predominant feature well indirectly a feature was a scar on his forehead question where was the scar answer between his eyes on the lower part of the forehead above the eyebrows question what was the shape of the scar answer just an indentation of some kind question well was it a long scar answer more round than anything else a few minutes later Kalustian returned to the same subject do you recognize anything about mr. Pratt's face as you look at it now that was the same as the individual you saw in your store yes the woman answered tell us please what well as I said before the scars on his forehead seemed to draw my attention Cochran made a note its scars now plural he realized that the woman was improving her description as she testified every attorney was warned about this phenomenon in law school it was called filling in memory or evolution of testimony and had sent many an innocent to prison Kalustian finished his examination by asking is there any doubt in your mind as you view mr. Pratt now that he was in your store at about 8 p.m. on December 18 1968 the positive woman replied positively there is no doubt in my mind in a lengthy cross-examination Cochran tried to point up 
a pattern of police manipulation of a witness who appeared only too glad to be manipulated. He led Miss Reed through descriptions of closed-door sessions in which she, the victim Kenneth Olson, Panther unit detectives, and a deputy DA had sorted through stacks of pictures in which Pratt was the only short black man and the only one wearing a bush jacket. He showed that she'd been inconsistent about the killer's attire and facial hair and had originally failed to mention any scar or widow's peak. She was now as positive that his shoes had been tan as she'd once been positive they were black. She flatly contradicted some of her grand jury testimony which had been equally self-assured and emphatic. Nor did she ever seem bewildered or uncertain of her answers. She said she couldn't remember whether Pratt had a goatee or mustache, he was wearing both in court, then corrected herself and insisted that he'd been clean-shaven, bringing her testimony back in line with her original report. She denied that she told Santa Monica police that the gunman wore an Eisenhower-type jacket and now insisted that it was a safari or bush jacket. She explained with her usual certitude that the officer who'd taken her original statement must have misunderstood her. So had the police employee who created a composite at her direction within 24 hours of her exposure to the men in the hobby shop. Somehow police technician Margaret Morgan had omitted the scars. Reed testified again referring to them in the plural. Cochran marveled at the spectacle of a respectable middle-class shopkeeper busily distancing herself from a composite that she herself had generated. Malleable witnesses were a prosecutor's dream. Through his cross-examination, Cochran deliberately kept his voice low. Jurors didn't like to see female witnesses bullied except on TV and tended to hold such tactics against the client. He said, You told us earlier that one of the things that helped you remember this man was the fact that he had a scar above his nose between his eyes. Is that correct? Yes, she replied. Now, you never told Detective John Eckstein, the original investigating officer, about this scar on his nose at the time you talked to him in December of 1968, did you, ma'am? Mrs. Reed ignored the question and said, I did tell Mrs. Morgan. Question. The question was, did you tell Detective John Eckstein? Answer. I don't remember if I told him, but I told her because of the composite. Question. Well, in the composite, did you, I'd like you to look at it again and see if you see any scar placed on suspect number two over his nose. Do you see any scar there? Answer. I told her, sir, whether she put one there or not, I can't help it. Question. 
there is no scar contained on this composite, is there? Answer. No, but I definitely told her. You know what I don't understand, Geronimo said to his lawyers after court adjourned at 4.20 p.m., somewhat late for a judge who was famous for her bobtailed sessions. For two years, my face was in every newspaper in town. It was on all the TV news shows, too. After the shootout, during the conspiracy trial, and when they brought me back from Texas. And yet, this woman didn't recognize me till the cops showed her a photo spread. I think she's very flexible, Hollipeter said. Too flexible. You have to feel sorry for her, Pratt said. She's just an innocent old lady that's trying to help the DA. I don't think she's part of any conspiracy. Hollipeter looked confused. This woman is trying to send you away for life, he said, and you feel sorry for her? This is nothing new, Cochran said, visibly annoyed. The poor woman looks at pictures for two years and can't identify a soul. Then the cops call her up and say, come down and look at some new pictures. They lay out a corrupt photo spread. She studies the faces with her husband and Ken Olson. The cops drop some hints and, hey, look, that's him right there. Now she's got to help the prosecutor take the killer off the streets. The guy's guilty, isn't he? The cops said so. At 2.50 p.m. the next day, Fred Reed, Barbara's husband, told the court that he'd spotted two male Negroes jiggling the doorknob at the front of his store on the night in question, but he hadn't driven close enough to get a good look. He said that he lost sight of them as he circled the block and then saw them turn into the Radio Shack parking lot where one car there had a light top and a dark bottom. Asked directly if he was able to say that Geronimo Pratt had been one of the two, he answered without hesitation, I can't say whether or not he was, no. Cochran had started his cross-examination when Kalustian said, Excuse me, counsel, may I ask one further question? He asked the witness how he'd known that the two men in the parking lot were the same pair he'd seen at the front of his store. Well, Fred Reed answered, one of them had a safari jacket on. Cochran jotted down safari. In bed the night before, he'd reread the 244-page grand jury transcript. Fred Reed had described the shooter's apparel as a light-colored windbreaker, a trench coat of some kind. Apparently, the prosecution witnesses had been warned of the need for consistency and safari jacket had been selected as their preferred description throughout the trial. As though Kalustian sensed Cochran's cynicism, he quickly asked, How do you know to call this a safari jacket? Oh, the old movies, Reed replied. 
you see these actors wearing jackets like that and we call them safari jackets I guess Kalustian said I see on cross-examination Cochrane emphasized the sartorial revisionism in the hope that the jury would catch the scent of collusion jurors were notoriously unfriendly toward rehearsed testimony now you used this term safari jacket he said to read you never mentioned anything about a safari jacket when you testified at the time of the grand jury did you sir the witness said he didn't remember Cochrane began a set of questions aimed at suggesting overly intensive pre-trial rehearsal did you discuss this case with Mr. Kalustian prior to testifying here today you haven't talked to him at all did you talk to him yesterday did you talk to your wife about her testimony yesterday didn't say a word to her about it she never mentioned anything to you every question produced a terse no Cochran left the matter to the judgment of the jury and said I have nothing further of this witness at this time Kenneth Crimson Olson a dark-haired man whose mustache and goatee flowed together in a perfect oval took the witness stand carefully spelled out his name and launched into a vivid description of the events of December 18 1968 once again Kalustian introduced the in-court identification almost offhandedly Olson had just finished quoting one of the gunmen as saying yeah man this is a stick-up we want your bread or we're going to burn you come on put your hands up when Kalustian asked if he noticed either of the two killers in court yes I do the school administrator responded would you so indicate please yes Olson raised his hand and pointed the man sitting next to Mr. Cochran the gentleman I have my hand over that's correct Cochran had a special reason for being contemptuous of the exercise three months earlier Kenneth Olson had been escorted into the courtroom by an LAPD detective during a routine proceeding at which Olson's presence was not required like Barbara Reed the school administrator had appeared to be studying Pratt's face Cochran had wondered at the time why are they giving him a preview after the day's proceedings Cochran consulted with Pratt in the county jail's attorney room and found him on the edge of desperation I didn't kill this woman Cochran said he said shaking his head I wouldn't do that it's not my style this whole case is about something else the attorney said oh man what is this about except this crime 
you are innocent but you're really being paranoid you'll see they're after me and they're going to do whatever it takes to get me later Cochran wrote as much as I liked and respected Geronimo Pratt I refused to follow him into his never-never land of official plot and governmental conspiracies time to get back to work I thought as I walked back to my car time to rejoin the real world I had faith in the rule of law I trusted in the integrity of my old classmate Richard Kalustian he was a stand-up guy we were the same school tie Geronimo Pratt and I were about to learn which of us was living in a dream world chapter 16 guilt feelings in court the next day Geronimo was in slightly better spirits Cochran had given him a pep talk about the way the justice system lurches along but usually reaches the right conclusion but he wondered how many indignities and slanders he would have to endure and how long he would have to lie awake in the hole waiting all night for the metallic click that meant he'd been set up for execution again his attorneys had instructed him to think of himself as their co-counsel to use his own wits and brains to help them analyze the prosecution testimony and develop fresh lines of attack Hollapeter had handed him a pencil and a legal pad and advised him to take notes but all Geronimo wanted to do was stare at the grizzly on the green California state seal and beam himself into a cloud he felt alternately perplexed hopeful angry disoriented his emotions changing minute by minute the central theme of his life had become who is out to get me who is behind all this he cringed as his name rattled across the well of the courtroom like incoming machine gun fire there were moments when he almost felt guilty when Kenneth Olson pointed him out he felt as though he'd been hit with a sledgehammer he wanted to scream not me you stupid son of a bitch not me then he wanted to comfort the poor man and tell him he knew how it felt to lose comrades and lovers and how sad it was that he'd suffered so much and in so many ways from earliest childhood Geronimo had never been able to hold a grudge he wrote on his yellow pad Ken brainwashed with the shooting victim on the stand Cochran and Hollapeter decided to hold their objections to a minimum no matter what the jurors thought about Pratt's guilt or innocence at this early stage of trial Ken Olson came across as a sympathetic figure he testified that the police had shown him sets of pictures of possible suspects seven or eight times starting in Santa Monica Hospital the day after the shootings 
he said he picked out some black men who were similar to the tennis court killers but had never made a positive ID. In December 1969, he said he picked out a person who had strong similar features. There'd been another lineup a few days later and I identified the person at the lineup that I had seen in the pictures as such. And I told Detective Eckstein that while there was a possibility, I didn't feel I could really make an identification of that person because I didn't feel, really, it was the person. Kalustian abruptly turned to another subject as Cochran said to himself. Olson sure used a hell of a lot of words just to say that he went to a live lineup but couldn't make an ID. What's the guy hiding? He scribbled. 1269. No ID? The interrogation turned to the 16-picture spread in which Olson had identified Geronimo Pratt, number 13, the only one wearing a bush jacket. I felt that this definitely did look and appear photographically to be one of the assailants, the school administrator testified, and that while I didn't think I could make a positive identification from any photograph and had expressed this to the police department, I felt that that was a picture of the person. Kalustian asked, was this the first time that you felt you had seen the person? Yes. Cochran recalled that Pratt had never appeared in a live lineup, a strange omission in a case in which eyewitness testimony was so important. After Olson had made his pick from a selection of photos, wouldn't the next step have been to put the suspect in a lineup so the victim could identify a live human being and strengthen the prosecution's case? Every competent detective would have followed that simple procedure. Why not this time? Kenneth Olson continued his testimony in a firm voice, losing control only when Kalustian asked him to identify an emergency room photograph of his ex-wife Carolyn. He winced and said, would you mind turning that photograph over? The prosecutor flipped the picture and said, Sorry. The direct testimony lasted a half hour and ended with Kalustian asking if there was any doubt in your mind at this time that Elmer Pratt, the defendant in this case, was one of the two men on the tennis court in Santa Monica on December 18, 1968? His strong voice returning, Olson said, There is no doubt. Cochran and Hollapeter had decided that the courtly older member of the courtroom partnership would handle the cross-examination. A deputy DA had already characterized the grieving Olson as flaky and the only living witness to the tennis court shootings had to be handled with care. Hollapeter took him through his story in a restrained manner eliciting no startling contradictions. After Olson admitted that he'd been face-to-face -face with both of them 
probably two or three minutes, the lawyer asked if either of the gunmen had had a mustache. No, Olson answered. They were clean-shaven. It was a crucial point. Nine or ten defense witnesses were prepared to testify that they'd never seen Geronimo Pratt without facial hair. He'd worn a mustache from age 16 and a goatee off and on, even in the army. Hollapeter asked, Both men were clean-shaven? Yes. You are absolutely certain of that? Yes. A trace of testiness crept into Olson's voice when the lawyer pressed him about the killer's jackets. Well, I was not counselor concerned about the jackets with a gun in my face. A few minutes later, Hollapeter nailed down an important point for the defense. Question. Well, now when you got up from within a few feet of the shorter man, you took a good look at his face, didn't you? Answer. Yes, I did. Question. Now, did you see any unusual features or strange answer no question facial characteristics answer no strange facial characteristics question you were about two feet from him at one time answer yes question you told us the court was brightly lighted answer that's correct Question. Did you see any scars on his face? Answer. I didn't notice scars. No. Hollapeter asked if there had been anything unusual about the way the shorter man walked or conducted himself. No reference had been made to Geronimo's bow legs in the earlier statements by prosecution witnesses and the defense lawyers wanted to see if memories had been enhanced on that point as they'd been on so many others. Very definitely, Olson answered. What was that, sir? Hollapeter asked politely. The fact that he held us up and then pumped bullets into us and murdered my wife. Several of the jurors seemed affected by this repeated reminder of the horror of the crime. Echoing Cochrane's cross-examination of Barbara Reed, Hollapeter closely examined the school official about the identikit composites. Olson said he'd been visited in the hospital two days after the shooting by a police technician with a kit of mustaches and eyes and so forth. By now, both sides were well aware that the original composites bore little resemblance to the hirsute man sitting at the defense table, and Olson provided the same explanation as Reed. The composites were faulty. I didn't think they really were very good. I didn't feel it really was anything but a very rough description because those things just aren't people. That's all. Hollapeter asked, the artist drew that sketch according to your directions then. Well, Olson answered, he drew it while he was interviewing me. What corrections did you make? 
he showed me and I made corrections and you finally approved that one is that true yes because I didn't feel I could do any better without being asked the witness volunteered that one of the most distinguishing things about Mr. Pratt is his intensive eyes Hollapeter asked well what is meant by intensive eyes well they are very piercing and very penetrating and are they wide set or are they narrowly set are they close together or far apart I'd say they are just they are neither are they deep set eyes that is sunk back into his head no are the eyes protrudent Olson seemed frustrated at his own inability to define what he meant by piercing and penetrating well he said after a pause I didn't feel that there was anything in his eyes or in his face that was that I mean he doesn't have a big scar or he isn't built in an unusual way but I can remember his face does he have any scars not that I have noticed Hollapeter was pleased to elicit this second inconsistency about scars and said I have no further questions alrighty so we will pick up there for chapter 17 the helpful witness context of white supremacy uh, if you have thoughts observations questions on the first portion of the reading the number 720-716-7300 the code 564-943-POUND press star 61 if you would like to participate number again 720-716-7300 the code 564-943-POUND press star 61 if you would like to participate email address until justice at gmail.com until justice at gmail.com I uh, have email uh, to get to uh, I'll start with that and then we'll get to the callers before we get to uh, the email we do have a correction from last week uh, Thomas in New York got us in uh, got us again uh, so last week uh, he mentioned that Jamie Foxx is playing Geronimo Pratt uh, in a film uh, that had been released. We were kind of surprised. I was very surprised. I think some other folks were as well. Uh, that like, wow, this film has been out. Anthony Mackie's in it, and you know, we didn't even hear about it. We didn't see it. The film Signal Hill has not been released. That's why we haven't heard about it or seen it. Uh, Internet Movie Database. They are generally reliable about uh, things related to motion pictures entertainment 
Uh, they do have this film listed, Signal Hill, but they don't even have a date of release on the site. All they have is that the film is in pre-production. But yes, Anthony Mackie uh, is supposed to be in the film, playing Johnny Cochran, Jamie Foxx, Geronimo Pratt. We, I guess, have to be on the And apparently, that's not even like the main thrust of the film. Apparently, the this movie is about something else. They just imagine that. What is the plot of this film where the side story, apparently, is Geronimo Pratt and Johnny Cochran? But anywho, it is not out yet. Uh, strive for accuracy. I say that all the time. Like he got us before Thomas and his black man stole a police horse in Chicago. Strive for accuracy. All right. On to the emails. Let's see. One of our investors wrote in uh first set of notes uh, in chained Number one, soon he was teaching Mexican history to Mexicans. They began to lose their Mexicanness and concentrate on their Indianness. Uh, Mr. Fuller posits that so-called Mexicans are just Native Americans. Maybe referring to them as Mexicans is a tactic used by racist man, racist woman, or Spaniards, in order to separate them from the original inhabitants of the geographic area known as Mexico could be I've heard Mr. Fuller talk about that before Uh, next chapter desperation a few months later Johnny L. Cochran Jr. picked up the phone said Geronimo Pratt I need you bad and I need you fast Geronimo saying that to him given Pratt's probable limited resources unlike OJ I wonder how his defense fees were paid that is a good question I am under the impression that uh Johnny Cochran might have worked this case uh, pro bono, meaning that he was not being directly compensated a whole lot. Like they got a big, like, well, I won't say take, retract. They got a settlement for millions of dollars. I believe something in the neighborhood of maybe $4 million. I'd have to go back to get the exact figure. But I mean, for 27 years in greater confinement where you did not commit the crime and they knew this, that's not a big figure. All of that said, but yeah, I think he might have not been even getting a whole lot of money. So, yeah, we'll have to see. Like, Johnny Cochran, the legend. Next. Uh, Cochran, his business was so good that he was planning to trade in his Cadillac Eldorado on a Rolls Royce. An example of show-offism. In 1979, Mr. Cochran was pulled over in a traffic stop in his Rolls Royce at gunpoint by LAPD with his three daughters in the black in the back seat uh, I think he had vanity plates with his name on them when they were questioning him about whether or not he actually owned this vehicle you mean the vehicle with the plates that say Cochran I think it had his like initials or something like that um, JCJR I think that's what he had on it JC that's that's the car that you think I stole and then attached my vanity tags to it and put much LAPD Mark Furman and friends continuing number three Holla Peter said that said he also had concerns about the state's main witness Julius Carl Butler Geronimo claims he kicked the guy out of the party because he's an informer the following is a newspaper headline past 
haunts ex-Panther in new life, Julius Butler's testimony helped convict Geronimo Pratt of murder. Now the first AME church official's prominence upsets some who say Butler was an FBI informant. A claim he denies. I read that report. And look at the date. Look at the date. This is Los Angeles Times, May 24th, 1995. I know this was not on the front page of the LA Times because what was happening at that time, May 1995, Orenthal James Simpson, that would still be the prosecution. That would have been, I think, right after they had like Dennis Fung. Uh, and their criminologists uh, coming and, and bumbling and oh we made all these errors and oh how did the blood not get taken and all that stuff so that's what was been going probably a little bit after that as the prosecution's case is winding down literally and figuratively we've not quite yet got to the glove right May 1995 when all that happens but I read this uh, newspaper report when Mr. Butler is talking about no I'm not an informant at this and he's like a, a high uh, standing member at this congregation crazy crazy the system of racism uh, number four the defense committee members made several stabs at reaching David Hilliard Panther chief of staff when they couldn't get through they thought they were having typical long-distance telephone problems but after a week they realized they were being deliberately ignored <laughs> oh no I gotta give a sound effect <laughs> I'm wounded. I'm wounded. Let me let me get the switchboard so I can do it proper. Oh my goodness. I can't I needed a good laugh for today. Let me do it proper. So you heard all of that. Uh they thought they were having Whew, I got choked. He thought they were having uh phone problems and all the rest, and it turns out that that is not what it is. We have got conflict between uh black people. So all of that he writes <clears throat> Whew. Black brothers, black sisters. Oh, let me <laughs> just play the clip. I just play the clip because this is what he said. Black brothers, like brother of hell. There we go. There we go. Oh, I'm so wounded. In fact, if you watch the documentary uh, Vanguard of the Revolution, it was on PBS, maybe. 2016 I think uh, one of Spike Lee's protégés black filmmaker there's a scene maybe I'll use it for the opening next week but there's a scene where Eldridge Cleaver is on the phone he's in Algiers Huey P. Newton is in the state somewhere we'll say California and they're talking and they're going back and says like brother brother I'm going to tell you brother you are the coon of the universe brother I'm going to tell you black brother you are no count coon and it's just because well brother I'm going to tell you coon brother you're no count seller brother you're uncle Tom brother you go black brother like brother hell yes 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 please don't call Gusty uh, brother ever for any reason next number Oh, next chapter, The People vs. Pratt. Number one, Hollipeter and Cochran waived opening statements and Kalustian called his first witness, Barbara Mary Reed. From a tactics standpoint, I found this interesting and wish the author had provided more information regarding the reason for not making an opening statement. 
good point because that's so unusual. When do you have that? Certainly did not happen in the O.J. Simpson trial. Like I said, Johnny L. Cochran came out swinging uh, in the opening arguments uh, in the O.J. Simpson trial. I mean, that would have been absurd. Like, yeah, I think that should have been definitely a you know why did they decide to do this? Number two. Uh, the woman answered in slow emphatic tones I remember his face thoroughly exactly everything about his features and she was completely wrong just another example of the problems with eyewitness testimony Jill Shively uh, although this isn't that bad but I mean yeah guilt feelings number one with Kenneth Olson pointed him out he felt as though he'd been hit with a sledgehammer then I wanted to confront him to comfort sorry comfort him the poor man and tell him he knew how to lose comrades and lovers and saw and how sad it was that he had suffered so much in so many ways from earliest childhood Geronimo had never been able to hold a grudge he wrote on his yellow pad Ken brainwashed I found this an interesting passage possibly an illustration of non-white victims confused state leading to sympathy for an oppressor. Wow, if ever a time, Stockholm Syndrome. I think that would be three consecutive books, right? Because that was encased. You, second worst book ever. Uh, and then it was in uh, Run of His Life, Stockholm Syndrome. It would definitely apply here, Black Male in Greater Confinement, Stockholm Syndrome. We'll stop there because we didn't get to the. Oh, and he mentions Jill Shively, my goodness. But we didn't get to the uh, other chapter. We will get that in the second audio, so we'll come back to that later. Uh, the number again is 720 716 7300. The code 564 Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Uh, folks who dialed in with a hand up, line should be open. Proceed. Can I be heard? Mo in Dallas. Yes, sir. Thank you, sir. Um, thank you. Uh, greetings to listeners and callers. Uh, thank you for this um, session. Um uh, I'll start with uh, Johnny Cochran because you did pose a question, you know, um, and uh, this is just uh, in hindsight, you know, we are like viewing these books from an analytical, from an uh, analytical standpoint. Um, and I just, I feel like maybe uh, when it comes to Cochran and him waving the opening statement, I think in, in the case of Pratt, you know, uh, if I'm correct, this was before, the O.J. Simpson trial, and I, I believe he was maybe more confident um, in his ability and, and more confused about the system in which he was in at the same time. And I just thought he was going, I, I, I think maybe he was relying on, on you know, his faith in the justice system. Um, uh, my note, uh, Johnny Cochran not believing Pratt. Um, victims, uh, uh, of the, uh, that are more confused about white supremacy um, and and they that that um, possess some sort of credentials in the system are very difficult to convince that the system is working in the in the manner in which it is working. You know, so like it, the the text stated how you know he was kind of 
I don't want to say downplaying, but he was, you know, he wasn't as concerned as Pratt was. And in, in my opinion, Pratt was less confused, you know. Um, and I guess when you are the subject uh, in which the system is working against you, 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 you tend to be less confused about what exactly is happening. Um, but it can be written off as, you know, you're being paranoid and things of that sort. Uh, let's see here. Uh, what, what is this? This guy doesn't have a, this was earlier in the reading. This guy doesn't have a mean bone in his body. Um, having a positive reputation, um, uh, did work in, in, uh, to Pratt's benefit, you know, uh, people knowing him not to be violent and then, um, or, or just having a violent nature, I'll say it that way. And then, you know, cross-referencing that with his family, you know, and, and him coming from, I guess, a, a, a helpful sort of stock or a stock that pro that promotes, you know, being positive and helpful, that was definitely to his benefit. Um, Pratt feeling sorry for the uh, first witness, the first ID witness. Um, I wonder if uh, she, the, the, the witness, uh, would have been offered as much leniency if she was a black woman in the courtroom, you know, to just kind of recant and restate and, you know, just just kind of come up with new details, excuse me, as the, um, as the proceedings went on. Um, and, and Pratt being angry with um, Ken Osing and then feeling sad for him, I also noted that. And I, um, I believe the, and this is just my conjecture, I believe his uh, conflicting, you know, views on the person, um, Ken Olsen, uh, had a lot to do with, with his parents. You know, he had a very uh, forgiving mother, if you will. And um, his father was kind of, uh, you know, um, his father dealt in, in the, the realm of, you know, respect and doing right by people. Um, so I just thought those were very interesting uh, character traits that he possessed. Um, it, it's it is a form of Stockholm syndrome, and it is very sad, um, like just to, to know that he can be on trial and still find sympathy for a, for people that are pointing him out as a guilty person when he knows he's not guilty. Um, thank you. I meet my line. Much obliged, Mo in Dallas. Um, whew, Johnny Cochran, I think, admits that he was still learning uh, at this time. Absolutely, still learning. He even we will hear that in the book. Him confessing, "Man, I was still learning." <laughs> like wowzers, I should have been listening to uh, Mr. Pratt and Woody. But that's you know, lots of us. Hey, we are still learning trying to figure it out and sometimes it's it can be difficult to believe the depths of racism white supremacy man confusion is lethal that and can I be heard? applied that to the opening statement as well that hey maybe since he was still learning maybe that factored into the you know Halapita was there too though right he was experienced there had to be a group thing maybe them deciding no opening statement we'll see retired firefighter yes sir uh, excuse me for uh, interrupting. Uh, greetings, Gus, and to uh, everybody. Uh, yes, I, I had all the while 
uh, ever since the, the two parties met, uh, attorney and client, uh, Johnny Cochran and, and uh, Geronimo Pratt, that there was one problem between the two. Uh, I would say joining in on the conversation is that that there wasn't a whole lot of counter-racist ideology in a scientific form that was available at that time. Specifically, there, there were some, you know, books on on the general subject of racism or close to it, but nothing really scientific during that time. So when Geronimo and and even Geronimo had an understanding that some really crazy things were going on, uh, but he couldn't really describe it. Uh, even before that, Malcolm X had a, had, had, had a, uh, a, a thought pattern uh, that was, he couldn't put his, he couldn't really put his finger on it. Uh, this has been going on since uh, Marcus Garvey, actually. And uh, so, the client couldn't explain, couldn't really explain it to uh, the his attorney, and so therefore the attorney, who was not familiar with what he was talking about, you know, uh, was just saying, "Oh, well, it's you know, it's just you know, uh, it's just uh, you know, maybe it's some just some thoughts, but don't you know, there's, there's nothing to that." Uh, I, I have a little bit of experience of being around attorneys and how they how they think, you know, in some cases, you know, and I guess they have to do with this the schooling that they go through, uh, you know, as far as, you know, something called logic is concerned. I think they, they teach that to attorneys also. And so that right there in itself is a, is a problem. Uh, and uh, that certainly uh, uh, compromise the, the relationship in the trial and you're talking about from that period of time to what, uh, some like 20 years after the fact, you know, by that time there had, there had been some information on science, uh, uh, on a, in a scientific, uh, uh, sense of racism, white supremacy. And then again, the, the, the amount of technology and the experiences. And plus, by that time, the uh, quote-unquote radical white people had uh, uh, broke into the, uh, I think, the, what it was, FBI office and found out all of this, 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 this clarity to what was actually going on by the time that uh, uh, Mr. Cochran was able to get his client out of that situation. So that all of that made, a, I think, a difference. Unfortunately, it had to take, it had to take that long you know, during that period of time, then again, it could it could have been worse. It could have get gotten worse, you know, as far as that concern, you know, because there was a many attempts on his life. I mean, every day was a, a, just about, I was figuring an adventure, you know, for him uh, behind those bars. And uh, I don't know, maybe, maybe if, if what of this, this attitude that they say he had, uh, Maybe in some kind of way that maybe assisted him into getting through that long period of time, you know, in that type of situation. I don't know. Uh, I've just been thinking about it on, you know, how, how, you know, how he would have had to, to think and do in order to 
be able to survive during those 27 years where every day just about it was something, you know, that was he had to be careful about. And that's all I have to say on this first reading. Thank you. Much obliged. Uh, retired firefighter. Man, important point. Uh, and I think even if you listen to a lot of the folks who are members of the Black Panther Party, in fact, the interview that I believe we started this particular book uh, study session uh, with a few weeks back, it was Geronimo Pratt. He was talking about Cointelpro and he was saying, I don't think this has been studied enough. I don't think people really understand. And this was him saying this even after he was released from greater confinement. You will hear Bobby Seale, uh, Geronimo Pratt, Minister Malcolm. In fact, you will hear it in this book uh, about we're in like 1970. Uh, You'll hear it in this book about 15 years later. Huey P. Newton and Geronimo Pratt end up in greater confinement together. And so they're, they're still trying to piece together. Like, what did they do? What were they doing? Like, Oh man, they did. So I'm for it. But I mean, that's coming way down. Like even the non-white people who we think are not confused are still confused. Like Bobby seal. And you'll hear all of them saying, man, we thought we knew like what white people were up to. And, but we didn't have a clue even Geronimo Pratt like man so yes Johnny Cochran still learn keep that in mind like wow if we had read these correctly chronologically like we <laughs> the Johnny Cochran we hear at OJ Simpson greatly influenced by Johnny Cochran and Geronimo Pratt and I really if you especially if you read uh, Journey to Justice that book was published after uh, the OJ Simpson trial and I think he spends a lot more time talking about Geronimo Pratt in that book than he does O.J. Simpson. Like that. Well, maybe that's not true. Yeah, that's not maybe that's true. But he does start the book with the Geronimo Pratt. He spends a lot of time talking about Geronimo Pratt uh, in that book. Uh, it's only about a third of it. It's about O.J. Simpson. But I mean, it is very. Uh, and he said it. Johnny Cochran said the most important case of his life is the Geronimo Pratt case. I suspect he might not have got too much money. I think it just it from what we're reading here, I think it probably had a, an extraordinary impact on his life, how he practiced law, like every journey to justice, read the book, like <laughs> change everything about everything, getting a better understanding of racism, white supremacy, what it is, how it works. You hear how he sounds once he gets to the end of this book too. Uh, let's see other folks uh, who dialed in with a hand up. Uh, let's see. That's it. Yes. Other folks who dialed in with a hand up. Hello. Can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Hi. Hi, PTR. Hello to all the callers. This is Helen. Um, my first time joining the book club. I'm enjoying the book. I also bought the book. And um, the first thing I did was look, um, I looked up um, Holla Peter. Um, he appears to be a white man. And there was a segment in the book where he says, seems like their description changed every other day. I don't doubt their honesty, but I think they're being manipulated. When he said honesty, 
I underlined it, underlined that part, and I believe that Hollow Peter was practicing racism at that time when he said that. Um, also, um, this part of the book reminds me of Adam Clayton Powell's um, his bio, his story, because he went through something similar as far as being uh, accused of a crime that he didn't commit, and you know um, about witnesses and stuff like that, and. Let me see what else do I have. I wrote down some notes. And, oh, yeah, I'm kind of nervous. <laughs> Let me see what else do I have. And, oh, um, I didn't, oh, another part of the book. I didn't know that it was, uh, this is Johnny Cochran talking. Um, I didn't know that, I didn't know it at the time, but I had just crossed over into a twilight zone of deceit, dishonesty, betrayal, and of or official corruption whose darkest corners have yet to be illuminated. And right there I thought of um, Neely Fuller's quote about if you don't understand racism. I don't want to mess up the quote, but um, that right there reminded me of that. And um, that's all I have to add. Thank you. Much obliged. Uh, dialing in to join us. She got the book and everything. Uh much obliged, Helen. Uh, absolutely. If you do not understand racism, white supremacy what it is, how it works, everything else will confuse you. Neely Fuller Jr. Very appropriate uh, for this portion uh, of the text that we read this week. Uh, let's see. I will nab a few notes. It didn't, I guess I'll, I'll ask really quick. You didn't, uh, it didn't seem reasonable to you, Helen, if the attorney, if they took the position, you know, Hey, if we're talking, uh, Kenneth Olson, he was shot, he could have been killed. And then his wife was killed. Like we, we don't want to say that he's just up here lying, you know, for no reason. Like I'm sure somebody did shoot he and his wife. So, uh, the police are just kind of using him. They're trying to exploit him. And, you know, he wants to, he wants to get the people that are after his wife. That doesn't seem reasonable. Yes, it does. That was another part of the book that I believe um, that he was practicing racism right there, that line as well. Hmm. Okay, okay. Much obliged, much obliged. Uh, let's see. I will try and nab a few of my notes, see if anybody has any other thoughts, and then we can jump to uh, the next chapter, let's see, from Desperation. Uh, where he's teaching about Mexican history, try to learn something about everything. You never know what type of situation uh, you might end up being in. And this ends up saving his life. The fact that he knows enough about Mexican, Mexican history to teach it saves his life potentially like, wow, learn something about everything. Um, and I, I, I've heard Mr. Fuller talk about that so-called Latinos being, uh, the indigenous population and how, you know, everyone has been taught by racists not to think of them that way. But I've heard him talk about that, uh, being confused. I did point out it within all of this and the constructive value of it, trying to find, and all of this is from trying to find a constructive way to use his time and energy. I think a uh, retired fire, retired firefighter said that you're going to be stuck here. What am I going to do? Am I going to join a gang? Am I going to rape other black males with a broom handle? Remember that one from last week? I'm going to try and teach Mexican history. 
I'm going to try to teach some Mexican history. <laughs> like, you know, try to do something constructive with your time and energy. Shawshank Redemption, right? Mr. Fuller talks about that all the time. Build a library. Do something constructive with your time and energy. Uh, but within all that, he says, uh, he would tell them they were indigenous. They got into their indigenousness. He said, then I would tell them about the biggest body of indigenous people on the earth, the human race. So tacky. No such thing. You have the white race and that's it. There's no other reason to belong to a race. Practice racism. Next, uh, he says uh, he'd never been in a penitentiary, but he knew some of the Hispanic, whatever that means, and black convicts were at war. If this was a setup, he intended to die fighting. That is so common. I guess it's so cliche. Everybody knows they keep non-white people in conflict in greater confinement all levels of greater confinement we should really be working to try to minimize that as best we can and again what am I going to do with my time and energy join a gang fight other non-white people gladiator games let's see now even when he gets his life saved uh, this fellow Dominguez who stops this attack from these other so-called Mexicans uh, Geronimo stepped to the nearby cell peered inside a picture of Adolf Hitler adorned the wall that's why I say so-called Mexicans now does this uh, suspected racist who's speaking Spanish is this someone who would be classified as white or is this a non-white person that would be a conversation you see this why why do you have that picture of Adolf up there what's that about Mm, educate learn something he's got the swastikas up there and all like what's all that about Uh, let's see next chapter desperation they avoid the live lineup. I, that stood out because police not following typical procedure was such a daily theme in the OJ Simpson trial to see that pop up again here you don't, where they're not following the typical procedure of having a live lineup when you have eyewitnesses they don't do that they just do the photographs like hmm, shenanigans here Mark Furman uh, let's see Vietnam connections Mark Furman and uh, yeah Geronimo Pratt the Vietnam connections in these two lots of lots of uh, crossover between these two books uh, that was not intended let's see so important now you keep conflict going between non-white people they said they got the so-called Mexicans and black people fighting in the jails and they got uh, informants all in the black panthers got them all paranoid and beating up and killing uh, one another and then they say Cochran had sniffed out plenty of paid informers in his courtroom battles they were a prime investigative tool of the LAPD the FBI and the DA's office especially in matters involving black defendants wow that that might even call for another black brother that would be well really I mean it would that just shows you I mean hey if you are being dominated it's easy for them to come and manipulate all of the black brothers and sisters whenever they feel like it so next as we see in this case uh, let's see 
next chapter, The People versus Pratt. I do appreciate you get lots of direct uh, testimonies so you can see what questions uh, were asked. We're supposed to be getting better at asking questions. Uh, and you see that come out repeatedly uh, in the text uh, for various reasons. I'll point some of that out in my notes. Uh, I thought it was the racism with, uh, so they're going to get their story together, right? We, the rehearsing was in the OJ Simpson trial as well, rehearsing witnesses and things. So they coached the witnesses say, okay, so we know you said it was an Eisenhower jacket before or some sort of trench coat or whatever. We're going to go with a safari jacket. We'll get everybody to say the same thing. White people get their words together. Safari jacket. Yes, we're in Africa hunting panthers, tigers. Eldridge Cleavers in Algiers. Yes, all the colonization and they're reading France Fanon. Yes, we're on safari. And that's what he was doing that night. He was on safari out to kill Whitey. Like safari would we'll just get everybody to say safari jacket, killer with a gun, safari jacket. Just keep saying that. Um, or they said uh, instead of the Eisenhower jacket, now insisted that it was a safari or a bush jacket I don't even know what that is a bush jacket <laughs> like I know they talk about black people living in the bush sometimes Africa is called the bush but a bush jacket make it uh, make it plain racism white supremacy through and through uh, let's see and the irregularities they allow the witnesses to come in when they're not needed so they can view Mr. Pratt, the defendant, and then they can come in and add all these extra details uh, to their disc- Oh, yeah, it was definitely him. And I saw this when they never made mention of, you know, him having these scars on his face before and all the rest of it. Like classic. Let's see. Uh, also, now this is why I said they have some of this is direct testimony, question, answer, all that. So he's talking to Mrs. Reed. She's the shop owner who said these two black guys came. Uh, we're going to rob her and then they apparently went and did this killing we think and she's saying oh yeah Pratt was one of them and he asks you know did you say anything about Mr. Pratt having a scar on his nose when you were originally questioned she doesn't answer the question how many times have we had that on this program we get a white guest and they just you ask a question and they don't answer Mr. Cochran he might have been still learning but he wasn't that confused she didn't answer his question Mrs. Reed ignored the question and said well I told the person uh, doing the drawing or whatever he says the question was did you tell Detective John Eckstein that's what you have to do sometimes ask again and you had a few witnesses who did that where she just doesn't answer the question uh, let's see that happened in the OJ Simpson trial as well uh, let's see they talk about the whole uh, manipulation piece uh, manipulating the photographs and the lineups and everything Mr. Cochran said that the night before uh, he went back and reread the testimony from Fred Reed uh, and I just reading more important than watching television uh, being really prepared uh, let's see Mm-mm-mm. else 
got that given Ken Olson and Miss Reed letting them both see Mr. Pratt well in advance so they could be great with identifying him in court. Uh, let's see. Oh, I thought that was so important in chapter 16 where Mr. Pratt totally innocent Vietnam veteran says after hearing all of this, he's, you know, feeling crazy and feeling sad for Stockholm syndrome totally drive you crazy. Mr. Cochran said that being in prison, you're pushed around, you're insulted. People are trying to kill you. He doesn't even have a toilet in these facilities. Like forget the people trying to kill you. I think for most folks, you just no toilet. He said, you have to lie down in your excrement that alone I think would be enough to totally crack like forget counter racism code forget Neely Fuller Jr. forget Dr. Welsing like I don't even have toilet paper I don't have a toilet like you've seen people right for the past year people have been brawling and fighting in the streets over toilet paper can you imagine being in a room that is not much bigger than like a closet and you don't even have you have a whole in the floor man let's see uh, this I thought was talk about connections now Tubin spent all that time OJ Simpson's dumb black people are dumb and Cochran and them did all this nonsense to say that OJ Simpson was like a part of the defense council and he's so dumb and ignorant he doesn't know anything what do we see here Pratt's attorneys instructed him to think of himself as their co-counsel to use his own wits and brains to help them analyze the prosecution testimony and develop fresh lines of attack. Wow, it seems like Mr. Cochran has had a similar philosophy for a quarter century. Maybe black people aren't so dumb they can use their brain computer to help us with the case. Next, uh... We got buckets of words. Kalusti and abruptly turned to another subject. As Cochran said to him, Olson sure used a hell of a lot of words just to say that he went to a live lineup but couldn't make an ID. What's the guy hiding? I thought that was really important. You got witnesses either not answering questions and or you got them using buckets and buckets of words uh, when you did make an identification before of a black person that was not Geronimo Pratt now you're trying to make it seem like well maybe I thought it might have could have been but it wasn't really and I didn't really know and I didn't buckets and buckets of words yes justice Uh, let's see anything else standing out is important Uh, let's see Oh, I loved it when they end. So they have Mr. Olson on the stand. His wife's been killed. He was shot too. Uh, And he says that uh, Pratt had these penetrating eyes, these piercing eyes. So what do you, what what do you mean? He starts going into detail. And then he says, Olson gets frustrated because he can't describe it. Black. Do you know how many black people were lynched for what they call reckless eyeballing? And I appreciate on the witness stand, you just can't say any old thing on the witness stand. Like, what? What did you say? What do you mean when you say that? Like, 
if we were in the, you could just say that, oh, yes, this nigger's got penetrating eyes. Oh, my gosh, yes, he's got penetrating eyes. What does that even mean? Like, what are you talking about? Reckless eyeballing niggers, yes. Uh, let's see. Before we get to our other segment, Nat, many other folks, uh, they have commentary they want to make sure they get in before we push off to audio segment number two. Um, can, I, can I say something? Mo in Dallas, yes, sir. Penetrating eyes, uh, the man not X-ray vision. Uh, that's all I have. Man, you haven't heard the half. Wait till we get to the next chapter. Just put a pin as that. Put a pin in that as we proceed. Uh, any anything else? Get to uh, the next chapter. Yes, uh, I was just thinking about the possible scarcity of of black attorneys uh, at that time defending uh, non-white black people. Uh, I do know about white attorneys such as William William Kunstler and Charles Gary. Uh, and uh, besides uh, Mr. Cochran, uh, I know Malcolm X had a attorney, a, a non-white black male attorney, uh, that was actually essential into uh, getting the uh, the receipts from that from the autobiography uh, to his wife, so it would benefit his wife and children. Uh, and I think Dr. King had a uh, black attorney uh, at some points in time they did at least uh, but outside of that I don't, I don't know if it, any other that I could think of at the time uh, so that that alone uh, would compromise uh, the numbers of non-white black people who were uh, who were uh, going through the court system uh, uh, uh in the in the quest of uh, uh, trying to uh, do something against the system of to counter racism, so to speak, and that's all I have to say. Thank you. Much obliged, uh, retired firefighter. That is true. Not a whole lot of not a whole lot of black attorneys now, but certainly at that time, like woof. Um, it's not like they were just allowing all kinds of black people. Yes, come enroll. We will happily want to make more Thurgood Marshalls and Johnny Cochran's. Yes, we want to crank out more of you all. Like, uh, and even Carl Douglas talked about what an example some of the that I've just mentioned, uh, Thurgood Marshall and Johnny Cochran specifically. He was, he was talking about black people who grew up in California that, wow, Johnny Cochran inspired a whole generations uh, of black people specifically to be attorney so yes uh, I did want to make sure I got in quick comment just about uh, reputation uh, Geronimo Pratt is a veteran like didn't our, our president uh, Trump and many others they talk about you know our veterans you know we got these Colin Kaepernick and folk they are disrespecting veterans they are talking about Geronimo Pratt I mean that normally that alone you know he's a, a decorated veteran two tour decorated veteran that normally would be more than enough to vouch for wow 
salt of the earth. Gerard Elmer Pratt. Much less, you know, having other people think that he's nice and pleasant and helpful and, you know, doesn't, is not a fighter, is not a thug and, and that type of thing. Like, I, I was thinking, because I think Mo and Dallas was talking about that, like, man, he had this good reputation and that, you know, served him well, which it did. I just talked about in, you know, him, he had having a reputation for teaching history, saved his life in prison. But all of that said, he was in prison. Like, uh, he was in pr- for 27 years in greater confinement with no toilet uh, Vietnam veteran. So, yeah, I was I was thinking of uh, I guess I can wrap here. We can get the audio segment too. when he talked about his name, uh, the Jagas being this rebellious tribe. And, you know, if they got captured, they would commit suicide and all the rest. I guess you can. I thought of Mr. Fuller where he says, uh, so you got the rebellious slave. And you got the slave with a good reputation. Anywho, uh, we will push off audio segment two. Oh, Thomas in New York, is that there? Are you there? Yes, sir. Um, man, Gus, you know I don't like when things are said about me that's not in good faith. I did send you an email last week explaining Signal Hill that I was incorrect. It wasn't even an hour or two after the show. I was very upset because I was looking for it, and I did research and found out that I was wrong. Sent you an email with the link. I clicked on during last week's show from TCM saying that I was saying that it was released in 2018, and I apologized in that email, which wasn't represented on the show. Uh, Thomas got us again. He goes with another one of those wacky conspiracy theories. Uh, just being accurate around the board. And the same thing with the police horse. I was corrected the same show. I came back the next week, said the Daily News, read the paper. The mainstream media put that out there. I mean, my Much obliged. I did not get the email. I'm not saying you didn't send it. I'm just saying, you know, I did not get the uh, email. But as you stated, it was inaccurate. But if I had got the email, I would have just read the email uh and you know we could have left it there either way we will proceed to audio segment two last man standing tragedy and triumph of geronimo pratt audio segment two context of white supremacy chapter 17 the helpful witness at night in solitary confinement Geronimo kept reassuring himself that his case was going well, but he couldn't shake his feelings of guilt and shame. He remembered some of the insults leveled at him in Huey Newton's public denunciation. Snake, who crawled into a baby's crib, no longer a man, disgraceful, counter-revolutionary, piggish, dog-like. Geronimo asked himself, Is that me? What made Huey so angry? Could he be right? He remembered how often his mother had told him that people usually get what they deserve. God sees to it. Was that what was happening? 
were his courtroom ordeals some kind of payback, a balance, a reckoning for Vietnam? He'd been transferred to the new Los Angeles County Jail and was enjoying the luxury of a bolted down metal toilet instead of a hole in the floor. He no longer slept in his body wastes when the guards neglected to flush. But the attitudes of jail personnel hadn't changed. When his brothers Jack and Charles and his sister Virginia tried to visit, deputies sometimes turned them away or made them feel so uncomfortable that they left voluntarily. Jenny canceled a visit when she was ordered to strip for a body search. Jack and Charles were made to open their mouths while guards probed for narcotics. Even Cochran and Hollapeter had to wait for long periods. Mr. Pratt isn't available right now. You didn't call ahead. Your papers aren't signed. Days passed in wrangling over the admissibility of evidence. Kalustian argued that a forty-five automatic, one of many weapons confiscated at John Huggins' house the day of the Campbell Hall killings, was Geronimo Pratt's personal sidearm and Hollapeter responded that it could have belonged to dozens of Panthers who frequented the place. Judge Kathleen Parker allowed the weapon into evidence. This is simply Tweedledum and Tweedledee, Hollapeter complained to the judge. When Kalustian expressed chagrin, Hollapeter responded, I must say that I am aggrieved that Mr. Kalustian is chagrined. When the word games were over, police officers and medical experts trooped to the stand to relate the bare facts of the killings. A witness told of seeing a car that looked like Pratt's GTO fleeing the scene of the shootings. LAPD Sergeant Dwayne Rice told of receiving an envelope from his old friend Julius Butler after he stated to me that he was in fear of his life. He felt there was a contract out on him to kill him. He said, in the event I am killed or if I die for some reason, I want you to take this, open it, read it, and give it to my mother. Rice described Butler as a pretty stable guy. He thinks pretty clearly and he acts in a very stable manner. Soon the jurors had an opportunity to judge for themselves. Julius Carl Butler had given up his raffish image and now appeared in a funeral three-piece suit and professorial dark-rimmed spectacles. His voice was inaudible beyond the first row of spectators and he identified himself as a hairstylist who'd been in business for ten years as Mr. Julio. Within a few minutes he was repeating the story he told the grand jury after Pratt had thrown him out of the party. Early on the evening of the tennis court shootings, said Butler, Pratt told me he was going out on a mission. Later that night, he said that he'd shot some people. 
The next day, Pratt pointed to newspaper headlines and said that was the incident that he was talking about. A few days later, Pratt stated to me that he was the one that did the shooting, that shot the people because Tyrone didn't shoot. Butler said he didn't know Tyrone's last name and hadn't seen him since Pratt had introduced him on the night of the mission. The hairstylist told the jury that his close friend Geronimo, not content with three admissions of guilt, later filled in details of the shootings. Butler gave the impression that he and Pratt were so close that they often engaged in intimate colloquies. In one of them, Pratt had told him that the red GTO was hid out. Butler admitted that there'd been no ear witnesses to any of the incriminating conversations. It was his word against Pratt's. According to his testimony, Geronimo always carried a 45 semi-automatic, the same caliber as the murder weapon. Butler said that his good friend admitted changing the barrel to make it harder for police to connect his personal sidearm with the killings. At the defense table, Johnny Cochran hoped that the jury was sharing his growing sense of outrage. Not only had Butler suggested a friendly relationship that never existed, not only had he described the taciturn Pratt as a motor mouth who beat a path to Mr. Julio's coffers la dames to reveal incriminating secrets, not only had Butler put the alleged murder weapon in Pratt's hand, but now he was busily plugging one of the biggest holes in the prosecution's case. In pre-trial proceedings, a police forensics expert had testified that the striations on the murder slugs didn't match the rifling in the barrel of the weapon alleged to be Pratt's. Julio had solved that tricky problem in one swoop. Geronimo told me he changed the barrels. In the recorded history of murder trials all the way back to ancient Greece, Cochran asked himself, has there ever been a more helpful witness? He's tied up every loose end. Surely the jury could recognize a story too convenient to be true. Cochran felt ashamed for his old classmate Calustian. None of their Loyola law professors would have countenanced a case built on the testimony of such an obvious liar. Indeed, an opposite precept had been drilled into the students. The first obligation of every prosecutor was justice, not convictions. It disturbed Cochran that by calling Butler as a witness, Calustian implicitly vouched for his probity. The beautician in the three-piece suit had provided gravitas without virtus. Cochran hoped the jurors noticed. Cochran opened his cross-examination by asking Butler's age. I'll be 40 in August, the cosmetologist replied. The attorney quickly turned to the relationship between the young Panther Pratt and the senior member Butler. Question. In fact, you didn't like Mr. Pratt too much, did you? 
Answer. I didn't have any feelings. I didn't know him. Question. Well, you don't like him too much now, do you? Answer. I guess the truth of the matter would be no. I don't care for him. Question. Would you say that you hate him? Answer. I don't hate anyone. Question. But you dislike him. Is that a fair statement? Answer. I don't want him as a friend. Question. Well, you dislike him. Is that right? Answer. Yes, sir. To Cochran's surprised satisfaction, Butler confirmed that Pratt had always worn facial hair, a mustache and goatee. It wasn't much of a beard, and identified an old photo of Pratt with a dense Fu Manchu. That's the way you remember him in November and December of 1968, Cochran asked. Butler said, to my best recall, then he added, let's put it this way. I don't remember ever seeing him without it. If Butler had been a defense witness, Cochran couldn't have asked for a better answer. He turned to the matter of the white over red Pontiac GTO that had been spotted leaving the murder scene with one or two black men. In fact, Cochran asked, it is true, is it not, that a number of people of the party drove that vehicle. Isn't that correct? Yes. In fact, did you ever drive the car? Yes. The first hint that the hairdresser would resist any suggestion that he'd been an informer came after Cochran asked if he'd served as a Los Angeles Sheriff's deputy. That's correct, Butler replied. And when you were working for the Black Panther Party, were you also working for law enforcement at the same time? No. You had severed any ties you had with law enforcement. That's correct. Have you, at any time since leaving the Sheriff's Department, worked for the FBI or the CIA? No. The answer was emphatic. Cochran left the subject for the moment and inquired about Butler's separation from the Black Panther Party. The man known as Mama testified that he'd resigned after a conversation with Bobby Seale, one of the founders. Cochran asked, were you ever disciplined by Mr. Pratt in April of 1965 with reference to Ollie Taylor at any time? Butler replied, I was never disciplined by anyone. Cochran asked if there had been harsh words between him and Pratt about the schoolboy's beating. No, Butler responded. After several more questions, Cochran decided to bring Butler back in the morning. He might even be useful as a defense witness on rebuttal, but not until more testimony had been adduced. Judge Parker adjourned court at 4.30 p.m. and ordered the attorneys to return at 11 a.m. Cochran said, Your Honor, 
Mr. Pratt has requested leave of the court to make a phone call at his own expense to Louisiana to his mother. He has received information that his mother, who is elderly, is ill. The judge was halfway off the bench. Over her shoulder, she said he could make the call at his own expense not to exceed 10 minutes. His hand shaking, Geronimo phoned Morgan City and learned that his aging mother was mending after a brief bout of dyspepsia. She was in the healing hands of her oldest daughter Jacqueline, the church organist. What are you doing in court, baby? Eunice Pratt asked in a weak voice that barely traveled over the phone lines. She was 66 now and he was the baby of the family, a biographical fact that she never let him forget. Mama, he said, it's nothing. Sweet thing. Somebody made a little mistake, that's all. Soon as this is over, I'm taking the blue dog home. He couldn't bear to tell her that he faced penitentiary time on the earlier gun conviction. His mother promised to light more candles for him and request a novena. I pray for you every day, son. His sister Jenny had told him that their mother also offered up Cato mantras for his release. She isn't missing any bets. Eunice asked, Do you still have your Bible? Yes, ma'am, he said. He didn't tell her that he no longer opened it. The next morning, Cochran asked Julio Butler if he'd hit young Ollie Taylor in the mouth and knocked out some teeth. That is incorrect, the witness replied with heat. Cochran asked if the teenager sustained some injuries. He was bleeding? His face was swollen? A towel was required to wipe up the blood? That's correct, the witness said, but added in the same breath, Pratt perpetrated the incident. After Butler testified that he and Pratt had gone into Butler's bedroom with Taylor and a few other Panthers, Cochran asked, During this conversation, isn't it true Mr. Pratt reprimanded you for any action that you directed toward Mr. Taylor? Answer, no. Question. He never reprimanded you. Answer. No, sir. Question. You never participated in any manner in any of these injuries. Answer. I slapped Ollie Taylor. Question. You never hit him with your fist. Answer. No, sir. Question. Do you recall a conversation with Mr. Pratt where he indicated to you that there had been some directive issued that there was not to be any fighting with any member of a rival organization or fellow Panther members? Answer. That is a lie. Question. He never told you you did wrong? Answer. No, sir. Question. At some point, 
did you ever call the Central Avenue office and threaten to kill Mr. Pratt and his family? Answer. No. Question. Did you ever at any point direct any threats toward Mr. Pratt? Answer. I was prepared to protect my life, sir. I was prepared to use whatever force was necessary. Question. Well, if you dislike him or were paranoid enough to shoot him, are you paranoid enough to lie on him? Answer. No, sir. A few minutes later, Cochran asked, Isn't it true you were expelled from the party around that time in June of 1969? Without hesitation, Butler answered, No, I quit. Cochran walked back to the defense table and scanned Butler's insurance policy letter. There it was in the hairdresser's own handwriting. First, I was relieved of all duties and official working capacities. Too bad I can't impeach him with this, Cochran said to himself, and show the jury what a liar he is. But it would open up the false accusations in the letter. Butler admitted that the party newspaper had run an item about his expulsion, but I had quit before they wrote this newspaper article. Cochran said, Well, the party, at the time that they indicated that you'd been expelled, they gave as reasons for your expulsion the fact of your involvement in the death of Franco Diggs, the fact that you were a police agent, the fact that they felt you had been a traitor? Butler admitted that they made all those accusations. Richard Kalustian kept his star witness on the stand for redirect examination. As Cochran listened closely, he detected the first hint of desperation by the prosecution. Apparently, it was now time to degrade the defendant's image with anecdotal evidence unrelated to the murder case. He leaned forward as Kalustian said, Tell us of the gun incident involving Long John Washington and Elmer Pratt. Butler needed no urging. I was arguing with someone else that was with Geronimo about some of his behavior, particularly he pulled his wife's hair out and I had to do her hair that day and I told him there was no cause for him abusing her in this manner that he was being stupid and at the time all three of them went in a tirade on me and then Long John picked up a gun and Geronimo said shoot him Kalustian said tell us exactly what did he do with the gun he cocked it full cock footnote 21 ready to fire with a light pole on the trigger. End of footnote. Question. What did he do with it? 
Answer. He held it on my head from across the table, at which time I told him he had no cause for shooting me, but if he did, he had to deal with these other people that were in the room. Question. Did Mr. Pratt say anything with regard to the gun at your head? Answer. He said, shoot him. Question. To who? Answer. To Long John Washington. Question. What happened after that? Answer. Pratt took the gun from him and held it to my head and told me he ought to kill me. Question. Pratt took the gun and what? At the defense table, Cochran was recalling some simplistic advice he'd heard about driving points home to a jury. Tell him what you're gonna tell him, then tell him, then tell him what you told him. Kalustian must have had the same teacher. But what was the relevance of this Wild West story that was being pounded into the jury's consciousness as though it were a passage from Blackstone? He decided not to object for the moment. The more stories Butler told, the sooner he would give himself up as a consummate perjurer. Butler was saying, He held it to my head. Who was he talking to? The prosecutor asked. He was talking to me, directly to me. What exactly did he do? Butler blurted out, He said, I ought to kill you. Object to that, Cochran said, springing to his feet. That has been answered three or four times. The answer is in, Judge Parker said. It may remain. The dogged Calustian dragged out more testimony as Cochran wondered how long the judge would continue to rule for the prosecution. This peripheral issue had no bearing on the tennis court shootings, but it did have the effect of making his client look like a murderous thug. Do you recall the exact words at this time? Butler was asked again. He said, I ought to kill you. The questioning circled back to the beating of Ollie Taylor. Butler testified that the incident had begun when Pratt jumped on him, after which Roger Blue Lewis hit the boy in the mouth with a gun. Ollie Taylor was sitting in the middle of the room and I was sitting next to Ollie Taylor and I was trying to talk to Ollie Taylor on the basis of give as much information about yourself to clear yourself and Geronimo stated to me that the shit he was talking was a bunch of bullshit and I looked over and he cocked the hammer on the pistol. Kalustian asked where was the pistol pointed if at all? It was actually right between me and Ollie Taylor because I was sitting side by side with Ollie Taylor. Then I noticed that Geronimo had an erection. Cochran's jaw dropped. In all the police reports, in the grand jury testimony, 
in the documents turned over to the defense in the discovery phase, neither Butler nor anyone else had made any mention of the male genitalia, priapic or otherwise. For an instant, Cochran wondered if he'd misheard. He looked at the jury box and noted quizzical expressions. The judge was leaning forward and frowning. Pratt looked disgusted. Butler continued, and Pratt stated, if you don't move, I'll blow your head off. And he said, furthermore, I think maybe you're siding with him. So he told me to slap Ollie Taylor. He say, you interrogate. So I did it in the pretense of trying to, at that time, I was frightened of Geronimo's behavior, very seriously frightened. I had never seen a man with an erection. That was enough. The two defense attorneys objected simultaneously. Kalustian forged ahead without waiting for the judge's ruling. At any rate, he said, you were frightened at that time. That's why you struck Ollie Taylor? Yes, sir. Then I began to talk to everybody in the room and tried to talk. Hollipeter interrupted. Object to the voluntary statements, your honor. Sir, the judge politely reminded Butler, there is no question pending right now. Cochran thought it's about time she reminded him. This guy has spent two days answering questions that weren't asked. That isn't evidence. It's story time. Pratt nudged him and pointed to the triumvirate of judge, prosecutor, and witness. What is this? He asked. The Three Stooges? No, Cochran whispered. The Stooges were funny. Black brother. Black brother hell. Context of white supremacy. That is uh, our last bit of reading for this week. We will pick up next week. Uh, the comedians. Next chapter. Seven two zero seven one six seven three hundred. The code five six four nine four three pound. Press star. Six one, if you would like to participate. Let's see. Our investor comments on the helpful witness. What we just heard. Number one, a witness told of seeing a car that looked like Pratt's GTO fleeing the scene of the shootings. So reminiscent of Jill Shively and her sighting of the white Bronco. Lots of uh, similarities. Number two, it was actually right between me and Ollie Taylor because I was sitting side by side with Ollie Taylor. Then I noticed that Geronimo had an erection. This was a bizarre passage. Was Butler implying something regarding Pratt's sexuality? Or was Butler implying something regarding his own homoerotic fantasy about Pratt from 
a black male butler who is nicknamed Mama and Mother? <sighs> Not sure what to make of this one. Me either. Much obliged, sir. Until justice at gmail.com. Let's see. Uh, folks who dialed in, commentary to share. Uh, line should be open. Proceed. Uh, let's wait a minute. Folks, we totally missed. Uh, let's see. Henry in Chicago. Did you have commentary? Uh, can I be heard? Yes, sir. All right. Uh, greetings, Gus, and uh, greetings to all the callers and listeners. Um, chapter starts off with uh, Huey P. Newton uh, name calling, uh, uh, not being codified, and uh, obviously, you know, we talked about it earlier in regards to his uh, time in prison. Uh, what you know, what has happened to him and how it has changed him. So uh, that's a bad situation with that, uh, BGQ. Um, same page as being in the hole uh, and uh, Geronimo Pipe being in the hole, slept in his own body waste, um, being in prison and, and, and having, you know, being near your uh, body waist kind of reminds me of uh, Nelson Mandela, Long Walk to Freedom, when uh, he was in Robbins Prison and the guards peeing on them and the other prisoners. That's uh, kind of brought that kind of brought that up. And um, the questioning of uh, Butler, and you know, I started to notice a lot of sexual innuendos in this one. You know, outside of, you know, uh, him specifically saying about Geronimo Pratt having an erection and, you know, uh, the way uh, it was mentioned about, you know, how he uh, handled the gun, that he cocked it, you know, and he cocked it full cock. Um, uh, the name of Long John Washington, you know, I, I mean, I know that's his name, but, you know, like I said, just just a lot of sexual in, innuendos in, in this chapter. So, um, an interesting question, uh, Cochran, you know, knowing that this, this, this guy is an outright liar. So, uh, hopefully the, you know, it could, you know, it could be to his advantage, but it doesn't, uh, I don't know. It, it may seem like it might turn out, you know, the way he may have, uh, he may have, uh, strategized, but you know, who knows? Uh, but the way they ended this chapter in regards to, you know, the Three Stooges and Cochran basically saying, no, that is not the Three Stooges because they are funny. So uh, this is a serious situation that Cochran is basically, you know, telling Geronimo that uh, this is no way funny at all. These are serious white people who are, you know, <laughs> ready to lock uh, Mr. Pratt up and probably execute him. So. Uh, but that's all I have on you, my line. Much obliged. Henry in Chicago. Uh, I had not even really thought of um, Long John Washington uh, in like a homoerotic sense. But yes, that would qualify. Uh, 
lots of <laughs> lots of homoeroticism throughout uh, this. I I don't know. Maybe uh, the people because I think some I don't remember who it was, but some folks had been wondering like, why does this black male have Mama as a nickname? Is that the beautician thing? You know, he's doing hair and so is that. Is that part of the business brand? I mean, I've seen black uh, beauticians before, even black males that do predominantly black female hair, and they didn't have like mama or some kind of female title uh, associated with them. I don't know. Uh, but yes, the man not uh, rethinking Rufus. Other folks, uh, commentary to get in, proceed. Can I be heard? Retired firefighter in Florida. Uh, yes, sir. As I'm uh, <clears throat> listening uh, to uh, the readings, uh, what it's doing for me is is uh, reminding me of the uh, the weaknesses of four of four wallism and how. I would say relatively easy. The white supremacists could dismantle such efforts. I mean, it's the same thing over and over and over again uh, with the uh, not only the Black Panther Party, but any other efforts that were designed to to uh, either work against or solve the problem or neutralize the problem of racism and white supremacy, uh, it comes to a similar uh, demise uh, with the whole idea of the inability to trust others in the, in the organization, the, the uh, differences of, of opinions that go to the point to whereas it, uh, creates uh, hostility within the environment uh, and a lot of distrust to even to the point to whereas quote-unquote members are actually are killing each other. Uh, and, and that's basically what, what I, would, I would dare say that any other uh, books on the subject matters of the Black Panther Party and some of these other organizations had similar outcomes uh and uh so that's that's what the book is actually doing uh when i read it the first time i wasn't really thinking about it from this point of view but now i'm putting putting more thought to uh on the uh <clears throat> weaknesses of four wallism based on what i'm hearing with this particular case thank you for sure on display in this book uh for wallism and uh, a lot of the weaknesses i'm sure there could be improvements you know you could have, but they did have codes about behavior we heard that i was going to say you know you could have rules about no conflict and no fighting but they said you know they had rules that was why julio butler got kicked out we got rules you're not supposed to be fighting so amongst lots of other weaknesses other folks uh with questions yeah. Give out the number again. 
double check just to make sure 720-716-7300 the code 564-943-POUND press star 61 if you would like to participate maybe folks are satisfied I'll get my notes and then we'll check in over time see Thomas in New York yes sir yes sir and I was out of breath early I was exercising uh, walking steps the um penetrating eyes that sounds sexual to me um penetration is generally um done with an erect erection and um that just doesn't fit as well I'm trying to follow the case. Um, I don't have the book, and I'm not as knowledgeable of the case as I was in OJ. So uh, my commentary is a little uh, probably, um, you know, I'm just trying to follow along and, and catch what, what how they're setting him up. And it's sounding like it's coming from everywhere. Um, now, my I have a little um, thought on the witness. There was a white man who was the surviving witness of this murder. And um, he was being questioned. Um, do you do you think that he's lying intentionally, or do you think that you know he really believes that Toronto Will Pratt is the person that um, killed his wife? Because um, you know sometimes in these type of instances, um, the memory does go a little off, and it seems like it's such a setup. Is this guy in on it too? Is he willing to you know have his wife killed and no one looking for the actual perpetrator of that crime? Just to to real old Mr. Pratt, you know that's where I'm at now. That's that's my thoughts so far this week. I'm with my mind. Hmm. That was what I asked the uh, young lady, Helen, in New York. She dialed in earlier. Your neighbor. She dialed in and she said she thought he was practicing. Racism. I think she was talking about Mr. Olson uh, and saying, yeah, she was talking about Mr. Olson. Uh, she said, hey, I think, you know, he's he's practicing unless I, you know, misunderstood what she said. Uh, I think he's practicing racism. Uh, I said, you don't think it's logical? Like, hey, you know, his wife got killed. He got he could have been killed. Uh, the thing, and, and two years have elapsed, too. It's been you know, it's not like this happened yesterday and you're going in. It's been two years. Uh, but his wife got killed. He got shot. Uh, you know, it could be, hey, you know, I think this is the guy. The police are kind of manipulate or majorly uh, manipulating things. It's been two years. You know, I'm trying to. They're saying it to him. This is or at least this is one of the guys. Like, yeah, I guess. I mean, system of white supremacy. But I mean, woof. Uh, I would think most if it was me, I would want the person who did the crime. They could have killed me. They killed my war. I guess they were divorced. They killed my ex-wife. I would want the person who committed it. That it would that would not work for me. Like if it was a white person, any white person will do. No, that is not. <laughs> no, I would not be willing to go along with that. The record shows apparently there are a number of white people who are willing to go along with that. Any Negro will do. So different type of thinking on the planet. Um, I don't know. She. Hell, I asked her, unless I got it wrong, she said, I think that is racism, white supremacy uh, on all of that. And and from what I remember, I think she was saying that she thought Mr. Olson was 
practicing racism uh, that he knew Mr. Pratt didn't do this and he was willfully lying uh, to go along with their plan to set him up on all this. Make sure uh, if you hear the archives, Helen, or if you're still listening, was that Mo in Dallas? Maybe it wasn't Mo in Dallas. I thought I heard someone else. They're going to does anybody else want to respond to that question? Do we think Mr. Olson is lying? Hurt? Yes. Was that you, Mo in Dallas, or did I get get the name wrong? Yeah, it's me. Oh, okay. Uh, I, did, uh, I guess the uh, signal like faded out. I just got like radio silence for a second. Um, and uh, well, you uh, in the answering um, Thomas in New York's question, um, I I do feel like there is a uh, uh, kind of um, an under an undertone of any Negro will do, um, uh, like with uh, Mr. Olson and and the way he is uh, uh, kind of being assisted into ruling Mr. Pratt guilty for this crime. Uh, so I, I, I feel that way, uh, and I, and I'm just going along with the uh, context of. Of, of the of the book, you know, earlier in the book, his uh, uh, Mr. Pratt's brother was accosted for something that you know he didn't do. So you know, it's, it's kind of like it goes along with the theme, if you ask me. But he could be confused, you know. Um, I don't, I, I don't know. Um, having no toilet, you know, for for all of that time in solitary. Um, made the uh made the concept of having uh bolted metal toilet a luxury. Uh that was that was sad. Um but I mean it is you know, it, it is, you know, possible and I think it is sad because it's possible. Like that's that's the possibility. It's just very saddening. To me at least. Um uh Mr Pratt's sister being uh Requested to strip search, Mr. Mr. Pratt's brothers having their mouth mouths, you know, fondled and all of that, and uh, Mr. Uh, the attorney Hollapecker, Peter Hollapeter, that attorney, uh, Johnny Cochran's co-counsel, um, his time was wasted. I I, I thought those. Uh, it, I wondered. I wondered, is that the worst that that attorney had to, you know? endure when it came to his, uh, you know, uh, when it came to him trying to interact with John Geronimo Pratt. And, like, and I, I felt that those three instances, you know, the the, the, the two incidents, like, or the third incident, the third incident paled in comparison to the, in the, uh, the two incidents, you know, with Mr. Pratt's siblings. Like, those are very dehumanizing things to put a person through. Um, and for you to, and for the author, Arthur to, you know, say, and, and his lawyer had his time wasted. Like, seriously, you know. Um, Johnny Cochran, um, again, confused and confident about uh, the way that the system worked. You know, he was comparing his education or ex- his experience in education um, uh, when obtaining his law degree. Um, to the execution of that said degree out in the real world, you know, um, I, um, I think, you know, he, he at, at the end of this case, and 
And I, I believe it was stated that, you know, in, in due time he understood that he was strongly and critically misinformed about the system. Um, Julio Butler, mama, um, I wrote down, he tells stories like uh, he's in a beauty, in a beauty shop or a beauty, like he, or like he was a beautician, you know, kind of, um, I've, I've heard stories of the sort, you know, to where you answer questions that aren't asked to incite more questions. Um, and I'm not saying that it, it is uh, strictly, you know, in a beauty salon setting, but that's kind of how uh, the conversations go. You know, you offer detail so you could give more detail. Um, and uh, Pratt's uh, uh, alleged, you know, erection, uh, that, that, I, I, it caught my attention. Um, uh, feverish black male, um, and like in my mind, I thought anytime uh, uh, black genitals are brought up in a discussion, someone has the potential to go to jail because of it. Um, that's all I have on you, my mind. Feverish. Did anybody else want to respond to uh, Thomas's question about do we think Mr. Olson, if uh, Helen in New York, if I mangled your commentary, make sure you set the record straight before we get out, if possible. Uh, but uh, hit the, the question, Mr. Olson, do we think he's practicing racism? He knows Pratt is not one of the two shooters, but he's just going along with it. Let's, you know, let's go ahead and get this nigra. Or do we think he just, hey, he's confused. It's been two years. You know, what are you going to do? Um, which which do folks think it is or could be? Feel free. You can take a little time to ponder on it. Uh, or maybe there'll be more uh, information as we proceed. And I don't know. I have to see if he uh, was like he alive 25 or 27 years later. Uh, when Pratt was released to like see all this. Cause I know some of the folks involved took the position that he did it. And that's their position. Like to this day, 2021, I don't know if he's one of those or if he's like, Oh man, you know, they, they tricked us. You know, I thought that like, I have to see, you know, does he, has he made a statement either way? Uh, let's see notes. The insults like, yeah, no name calling and Geronimo Pratt is a two tour Vietnam veteran and he's in greater confinement with no toilet thinking man am I a sellout am I an Uncle Tom like oh my god like uh oh. and they said no longer a man like jeez the man not like all over the section for this week uh, so they transfer him to Los Angeles County Jail I think that's where Orenthal James was held uh, bolted down toilet blah, blah 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 that's where OJ was <laughs> that LA County Jail that's where oh, that's crazy uh, man there are like right now cases of black people attempting to visit family members where they go through this exact type of dehumanizing disgraceful terrorism uh, we had segment uh, there was a big report I believe in like 2014 uh, in New York and they talked about how 
if it was black female visitors, sometimes they would make them remove their sanitary material, right? If they're going to go in to visit. And the anal cavities, all of it, all of it. This is like 21st century happenings right now for black people attempting to visit other black people. And the exact same, make them wait, have to sit out there and wait five hours. Sometimes you wait five hours and say, oh, no, Mr. Pratt, you can't visit. So, yeah, sorry. And what they'll do for black people where for like you heard from Mr. Hollipeter, Mr. Cochran, even though that's not that's not an anal cavity search at all. What they would do for black people, it wouldn't be, oh man, you wasted two hours in the lobby and you don't get to see your relative. It would be, you are moved. So this is like a five hour drive, maybe sometimes one way to some remote part of the state and you wait for four hours and then they, oh no, you you can't. Matter of fact, that's in Picking Cotton, another book, Black Male Falsely Accused dies and they posthumously exonerate him exact same thing they deliberately moved him I think he got convicted in North Carolina and I think they even moved him out of state I think they might have moved him to like Tennessee or someplace Some, it was like way far like five something crazy uh, and his family would try to visit oh nope 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 he was reckless eyeballing this week no visit sorry about that mm-hmm. yeah, gotta go back yep yeah, sorry so we've had uh guests on the program who talked about this have even broken it down in detail where like if you leave the visiting center the terrorism isn't even over if you get to the parking lot and you're like shook up you know you had to go through this intensive search maybe you got to see your relative maybe they didn't maybe they're in a, you know having a tough time and all of it you know you're just overcome with emotion you might be crying or tearing up or just trying to compose yourself and come, hey get out of here no sitting in the parking lot gotta move keep it moving total deliberate experience of terrorism for black people like to discourage you I said yeah don't come visit isolate we can do whatever we want just isolate don't ever come visit which is exactly what he said that was the result they just stopped visiting and you might even request because you don't want to hear that who wants to hear that from their you know mother or brother or sister or uh, child coming to see you and they have to go through all that let's see can I be heard? Uh, you can. Uh, if you could give me a moment, let me get a few more of my notes real okay. quick. Let's see. There are errors in this book. That was something I've you know harped on for other books, uh, especially since I'm reading it. He misspells uh, colloquies between Pratt and uh, Butler, allegedly. Uh, and that's not the first... Uh, error, misprint, poor editing, however you want to rate it. Uh, Let's see. I thought it was really, I mean, talk about greater confinement. Your mother parent is on their deathbed and a white woman judge, love that it is a white woman, Judge Parker in this case, on your dime not to exceed 10 minutes like dang I'm a Vietnam veteran like dang uh, maybe you should be thankful that you get 10 minutes uh, so he uh, he makes the call his mother Eunice Pratt her, uh, she's weak her voice very barely travels over the phone 
66 years old. Program we had yesterday, you are what your grandparents ate like. That is a total uh, disgrace. Uh, 66 years old could be diet related. Don't know. Uh, didn't sound like they were getting the uh, best food and such. Uh, dyspepsia, upper abdominal discomfort described as burning sensation, bloating or gassiness, nausea or feeling full too quickly after starting to eat. Uh, indigestion can have causes that aren't due. This doesn't sound like something that you die from. <laughs> Is this supposed to be fatal? Like, uh, I don't think this is something is deception. Yeah, let's see. Is this fatal? It is the most common form of dyspepsia and results in no serious consequences. Hmm. I have to check on that. This I don't I'm curious. Yeah, this seems to suggest the the reports that I'm looking at seem to suggest that this is not something that's fatal. Um it can impact quality of life, but it doesn't look fair. I have to check on that. They same thing as now. They just make up reasons and say a black person died and call it a day. Uh, let's see. What he missed out. I feel like you end up missing. We end up missing out on a lot of really important things with family. Just. With this sort of foolishness, again, Vietnam veteran, uh, where his mom had already had to sit around and do all that praying and hoping why he could have been killed uh, in Vietnam. And now to have him going through all of this terrorism uh, where he doesn't even have a toilet. Um, Yeah, the whole Julio, but the the erection component, the man that I have no idea. Is this a lie? Is this his own? homoerotic fantasy is this something that like the FBI agents t- Hoover oh my god we did the whole program on J. Edgar Hoover and his homoerotic the allegations of his homoerotic behavior is this something that like the his white handlers like is this a, a part of the story that they told a part of the lie that they told him to insert like to make it seem like uh, Pratt was was like sexually aroused at the thought of killing uh, this black male, like what the, uh, my brain computer can't even process. Like, <laughs> what is what in the world? <laughs> I guess that was Johnny Cochran too. Like, what in the world? What is going on here? Uh, retired firefighter in Florida. Uh, yes, I, I would. I would have a problem with uh, uh, illustrating that in my in my my mind about uh, another male with a an erection and he has I'm, I'm perceivably thinking that he had his pants on at the time when he was describing this incident uh yeah uh i i would uh think that uh in trying to answer answer thomas's question uh, that uh, that white people are affected by racism, white supremacy, from the standpoint of if pressed with the correct questions, uh, and specifically by another white person, that uh, although they may not be consciously 
uh, wanted, uh, working for someone uh, that they would actually just pick that black person because all of us, all of us, uh, we're just one big nigga uh, collectively. Uh, and any one of us will do when it comes down to it. Uh, I, I think white people do suffer from that. Not well, not that's the wrong word to use. Suffer. They they are infected by that. Uh, uh, it was something else I was thinking about, and then it just slipped away from my brain. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, maybe it'll come back. Move it on. Much obliged. Um, yeah, I mean, I, Mr. Olson had picked a black person before. Uh, just get that in real quick. Uh, before Geronimo Pratt, they put, he had already said, oh, this is the guy. And it turned out that that wasn't the guy that uh, they checked his record. And that guy was in greater confinement at the time. So, I mean, you know, it it could be just, hey, any of these black guys will do pick this person i think he'd also you know sometimes looked at some of the photos and said he didn't see the person so i don't know it could have been that he was he was making an effort he was being sincere and made bad choices two times that could have happened he could have been practicing racism both times he could have been practicing racism only the time with geronimo pratt a lot of different ways it could and it was two years (laughs) again it wasn't like this thing happened in 1968, and then immediately a couple of weeks later, you know, this is too. I mean, woo, I don't know. Uh, you think under normal like circumstances, how good your memory is? Now you gotta wait two years to come and testify about what you saw and what this person was wearing. It, come on, uh, Thomas in New York. I, I just remembered what I remembered. What just remembered what I was wanted to add. Oh yeah, yes. Uh, what I wanted to add also was with the advent of uh, uh, relatives and visitors were having trouble uh, with uh, visitation. Uh, that's common. Uh, the uh, the confinement authorities uh, are are en- uh, envious, jealous of uh, a lot of. Uh, uh, black inmates, especially ones like Mr. Pratt, who actually uh, have uh, generated some attention. I was, I would, I was, I think I remember uh, Asada Shakur's family would have problems when they were trying to visit her. I could be wrong about that, but but I wouldn't be surprised, uh, especially for what she was accused of participating in. Uh, I would imagine Huey Newton probably had the same uh, trouble, uh, George Jackson, uh, you know, uh, especially that type. But then again, you know, uh, a white prison authority can be that way with any non-white black person, you know, but uh, especially someone who uh, was involved uh, in some level of neutralizing the system of race of white supremacy and uh, was in behind bars on some incident that that affected directly on a life of a white person. 
that would generate that type of behavior. That's it. Thank you. I think they had an explicit passage in the book about the guards uh, beating him, terrorizing him, and saying, you killed a white woman. Uh, you know, we'll learn you. So, absolutely. And, and you were in the Black Panther Party. And, and, and just, you know, add on, add on, add on. So, yeah, terrorizing you, whole family. Uh, have to be brief. Uh, Thomas in New York, did you have something that was brief? That if I heard it correctly? Very brief. Very brief. Um, toilet seats. Toilets in the psyche are at the hospital. They did not have seats on them. I thought it was very odd. They would have to sit on the, the part, you know, that you put the seat on. Um, you know, when you wake up, you don't want to sit there. Uh, the bathroom that had the seat in psyche R was for the police and correctional officers and the, the staff, but all the bathrooms they can use, no toilet seats. And I agree with you. Um, I can't have be the survivor of a murder of a loved one and just any white person will do. You know, I could see white people doing that, but I couldn't. I don't think most black people could. I mean, mom. Different ways of thinking on the planet. Any Negro will do seems to be a very, man, very common philosophy anywho uh, we will do workplace racism tomorrow incidentally I was going to do a big to do uh, not today but like this weekend about white guests only and blah 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 and somebody else had emailed me about a non-white guest it happened a few times actually so white guests only white guests only and then I have to say oh man Dr. Gerald Horn is coming back on the program not that I'm bummed about it but Dr. Gerald Horn is coming back on the program. Uh, you know, I almost felt he's grandfathered back in because he was on before that was a policy. And we had said, oh, yeah, uh, the bittersweet science. You should come back on the program to discuss that. And then Margolin Hagler just passed away. Now the book has been published and Margolin, Marvin Hagler is in the book. So what timing? We will have Dr. Horn with us uh, on the program next week uh, to discuss the book The Bitter Sweet Science we read him in the book club before uh, Paul Robeson, uh, he was a guest this past summer, he'll be back with us again looking forward, we will certainly get a word in on Marvin Hagler and probably Muhammad Ali I've been saying Muhammad Ali has been on my mind, Muhammad Ali Jack Johnson I don't know about Floyd Mayweather It's maybe, maybe not, but Gerald Horn, Dr. Gerald Horn next week returning to the cows, but other than that, white guests only. Anywho, much obliged for folks uh, tuning in. Hope it was worthy of your Thursday evening. Strive for accuracy. Sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy for many, many reasons. Uh, They had a no drugs policy in the Black Panther Party. Uh, They did have some good codes in addition to being sober being buckled if you have to go out uh, I've been saying for a minute I would hunker down Uh, they had the shooting in Colorado this week Uh, I think they just had uh, a shooter I forget which state he was in but they said he was at a hospital uh, who was arrested (laughs) hunker down if you go out and you see someone being loud and rowdy 
exit. Uh, this is not a time for confronting rowdy, hostile strangers. You should be thinking this person could be armed. This person, in fact, might have a whole cadre of folks who are armed, ready to shoot out. Might be an enforcement officer. You have no idea. Exit. Very risk averse uh, for, you know, the foreseeable future. Uh, so if you go out, you are sober, you are buckled. If you're driving, you're not on the cell phone. Uh, one, we're trying to minimize contact with the Mark Furmans of the known universe. And we need all of our attention. Very dangerous environment. That's it. Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. Man, for this week, you have Geronimo Pratt's. Man, am I a sellout? No name calling. Very easy way to work against white supremacy racism. Cow signing up. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, What's your brother. Problem? You're a victim. Right. I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Ah.